meeting today. Um, in the room with me, I have Andy Allen and Don Starleaf. We have Alex Eason, Sinead Innes, Kelly Armstrong, Mark Durkin and Karen Mullins. So you are all very welcome. I'm going to move then on to, on to agenda item number one, which is apologies. Have we any apologies? Sinead, if you yeah, want. Sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we're going to move on to item number two, which is chairperson's business. Member, we've, members, we've been advised that the DARE committee is undertaking scrutiny of the decision of Mid and East Antrim Borough Council um, and DARE to withdraw staff from Larne Port and DARE from Belfast Port. The committee will shortly finalise its terms of reference for the work it intends to undertake and will provide uh, this to us in due course. Members, any comments or content to note? Content to note that? Yep, yeah, okay. Um, members, I just have one more thing under Chairperson's business, and it was um, a, a response that the Minister gave to one of the questions in question time on Tuesday, whenever it was brought up about um, DFC, the Sports Sustainability Fund, and sporting clubs. Um, she appeared uh, to, um, uh, well, she actually said that she has not been lobbied on this issue to any great extent. Um, when I know this committee has talked about this every week since before Christmas recess, we have sent letters to her department. Her DALO listens in every week to um, our committee. So I find it a wee bit hard to believe that the Minister has not been made aware of these issues that are happening with our sports clubs. And uh, I hate, I, I mean, it is every week I'm saying it. Um, I was contacted again with another sports club this week. Um, who uh, had been turned down for their LRS scheme and was far too late then to apply for the Sports Sustainability Fund, albeit they're not a sporting club, they're a social club. Um, so it's just that, if, I just want to put that on the record, that we have, this committee has actively um, been working on this issue on behalf of those many sports clubs that have contacted us. And I just, I just find it a little bit hard to believe the Minister didn't know an awful lot about it or wasn't informed about it. So that was all I wanted to say on that issue. Um, members, I'm going to move on then to agenda item three, which is draft minutes. You'll find these at page six on our draft minutes for the 11th of February 2021. Are members content with the minutes as drafted? Content? Yeah. Good stuff, thank you. Members, I'm going to move on to matter, matters arising. Before I start matters arising, there is, bear with us, there's an awfully long amount of matters arising to get through. There's pages upon pages, and we have four briefings today. So um, just very conscious of time, and if any members do have comments, can they just make their comments uh, succinct? So the first item on matters arising, if members would turn to page 14, there's a reply from Unison in relation to supporting people. Unison states that it has only been in contact with the Minister for Communities on this issue of concern um, and are awaiting response from their meeting that they had with her back in December. That was based on a letter we had sent to Unison. Um, so that was just their response. Are members content to note that? Thank you. I'll move on then. Members, page 15, um, you've been provided with a NICFA reply in relation to the Concordat Agreement. Following recent meetings, the Department officials and the Minister NICFA has, in response to a request from the Minister, recently developed a draft manifesto for change document identifying key priorities and actions for strengthening the joint working relationships between government and the voluntary and community sector. NICFA is currently consulting the sector on this doc document. NICFA seems more value in pursuing the issues identified in the manifesto than reviewing the wording 
of the underpinning Concordat agreements, as the Government Voluntary Sector Joint Forum had identified that the need was not to review the Concordat but to improve practical joint working. Members, again, any comments on that are content to note? Go ahead, Kelly. Chair, I was just going to say it would be worthwhile um, if we maybe wrote back to NICFA and thank them for that, but ask them if as early as possible we could have a written briefing um, if we're outside lockdown, then a face-to-face -face meeting perhaps with them, a presentation um, on what that that better working relationships would be. I'm extremely keen to find out how across um, the department and all departments, um, how future procurement of the community and voluntary sector will work, um, given that they're, they're, many of them haven't got letters of offer this close to a financial year. Um, is there something within that uh, manifesto that's looking for commitments from government to um, you know, give them a further advance notice and you know, um, whether it's a contract or a grant and so on. Okay, we can do that. Any other members, any other comments? Are you content then that I move on? Content? Yeah. Okay, members, then I've got asked you to turn to page 17 of your pack. We have a departmental response in relation to welfare reform mitigation. Uh, measures, it states that the department is committed to full and proper engagement with the committee on the welfare reform mitigation me measures and the work is being taken forward as three distinct but related elements. The first element of this process is legislation to extend the existing statutory welfare mitigation measures, a draft bill to provide for the extension of the social sector size criteria. The mitigation scheme has been prepared and shared with the executive. The executive has previously agreed to the bill being introduced under the accelerated passage procedure and the minister appeared before this committee on the 13th of February 2020, that's this last year to explain the reasons for that. Um, I know that, that we, at that time, whenever we had got that through, the committee was just newly formed. We were just then on the, on the, the mouth of the COVID, so therefore we had been absolutely seen that, that that had to happen. Um, we're a year down the line, um, and we still have seen nothing about these welfare mitigation measures or anything to do with them. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be overly happy with um, accelerated passage. Um, but we're getting so close um, to the end of March that I don't know what we're going to do there. Kelly, I'll bring you in in, in a wee minute. just want to finish this. I'll bring you in. It also then, um, the first element also includes the Welfare Supplementary Payment Extension Regulations. This statutory rule is subject to the draft affirmative procedure and will provide for the extension of the remaining welfare mitigation scheme. The second element of the process will be two statutory rules subject to the draft affirmative procedure that will seek to amend the existing mitigation schemes and to provide for payments for eligible people who are claiming universal credit. This will include changes to the eligibility criteria for the social sector size criteria and benefit cap mitigation schemes by closing the loopholes in those schemes. And the third element of work is the review that was uh, included as a commitment in the NDNA deal. Um, the current position is that the department is currently finalising proposals for the format of the review and announcement on the way forward will be made at the earliest opportunity. Um, I know Kelly, you'd wanted to come in and then Sinead. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, to be honest, there's there's very little at this stage now that's been left for us. I'm extremely disappointed that a year later, um, the 
the information is only coming forward to us now. And I know the minister had talked about it in the chamber the other day. Um, it's very disappointing that the committee has not been included in, and it looks like the department's going to go ahead with accelerated passage. My concern really is the final element that's mentioned within the letter. There's six weeks left until the new financial year. Um, last year, now a year ago, new decade, new approach, there was an agreement there um, for a review to take place. To say that the department is only now planning to invite customer representative groups to participate is disingenuous, to say the least. It means then that the financial year is going to start with no um, opportunities to review what was and what could be added. Um, we know that there are later on today we will hear a call for um, improvements relating specifically to COVID, but I'm sure a lot of these groups, in particular the Cliff Edge Coalition and especially Marie Curie when it comes to the terminal illness, have many other options and items that they would have liked to have had discussed. Um, I'm just wondering if we could write back with disappointment to the department um, just to state that the final element is extremely late in coming, um, that the committee actually should be included within the discussions um, and that that we see their plans for that uh, as soon as possible and when do they envisage that these um, the review will take place and any additional elements will be able to actually be implemented. Okay, thank you Kelly. I have Sinead and then I have Mark. So Sinead. Thanks, Chair. Um, yeah, listen, look, the, the priority for all of us now needs to be uh, to get the extension of the existing uh, mitigations and make sure that we close the loopholes. Um, and then the conversation will need to move to how we can actually enhance uh, the mitigations uh, after that moving forward. So um, while obviously this sits within the remit of Department for Communities, it is an executive um, issue as a whole. And I think further to Kelly's uh, proposal, I think that this committee needs to write to the executive um, and ask, uh, demand that the the, uh, the mitigations are finalised um, and the package that was agreed last February um, is put in place. Okay, thank you, Sinead. Mark? Mark Darkin, can we bring Mark in, please? I don't think Mark's there, Kelly, or oh, Paula, sorry. Sorry, it's dropped out. That's okay. Um, okay, so I have a proposal there um, from Kelly. Sorry, Mark, sorry. go ahead, Mark. I don't know what exactly ha ha happened there. It was really, well, uh, Kelly had most, most of the points that, that I had, you know, in terms of disappointment. We've been raising this for, for more than a year now, so to hear it being discussed as, or talked about as a priority now, <laughs> it, it, it's a bit hard to, to get your head around. And then I welcome that the commitment, let's say, the department is committed to full and proper engagement with the committee on welfare mitigation measures. Jeepers, I'd hate to see what we'd have got or not got if they weren't committed to it, because like I say, we've been raising this for 13 or nearly 14 uh, months now and not getting many answers or, or any insight into the, the ministers, the two, two different ministers, we've had their plans and I'm not blaming the ministers for this. I know there are issues with executive as well. But it's been most uh, most frustrating uh, for ourselves as committee members. I mean, the reason we want to scrutinise this, the, the reason we want to have input into it, it's not just about us as MLAs, it's about those experts in the sector and it's to make sure that we get it right. Um, and th this is an opportunity to do so. And I think if we miss this opportunity to, 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 to right the wrongs, then we might not get another one. We've seen how long we've had to wait for this one. 
but uh, just um, the second Kelly's proposal formally. Okay, now, thank you, Mark. Nobody else wanting to come in on this issue. So we have a proposal from Mark and um, and Shane, or sorry, proposal from Kelly and Sinead. So members in agreement with um, what they've both proposed? Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Good stuff. Okay. I'm going to ask you to move on then, members, to page 19, where you'll see a departmental response in relation to tenders. The response provides an update on the present situation in relation to tender submissions to provide work-ready employment employability services. Um, the bid for funding was not met within the draft budget settlement, so the, the, waiting of, or the awarding of the contract has been paused. Under procurement guidance, tenders will now be asked if they wish to... to wish their tenders to continue to be considered. The Department is currently considering whether funding can be found to proceed with this contract. Members, again, can I ask any comments? Are you content to note that response? Tent oh, sorry, Kelly, go ahead. Sorry, Chair, I was just going to say, again, like Sinead had said earlier, this is an issue within the executive. Should we, as committee, write to the executive? Now, obviously, these tenders um, have been paused and, and um, businesses have been asked to if they're still interested, but still interested on what? Um, we don't have any work-ready employability services to offer um, any young people or older people coming through, as that matter. I think it would be worthwhile to support the Minister by writing to the executive to say that we're extremely disappointed that um, the, the department has not received um, an allocation of funding for work-ready employability services that will help to take those um, young people out of unemployment before it becomes uh, you know, a more difficult problem for Northern Ireland to resolve. Okay, yep. Thank you, Kelly. Members agree with Kelly's proposal? Yes? Can I hear you? Yes? Yeah? Yep. Okay, thank you. Okay, members, um, where are we now? Yep. Can I ask you then to move to page 21 of your meeting pack, where we've been provided with a response from the department in relation to the draft programme for government. It states that once the executive has agreed the final framework, departments will commence work on development of initial PFG delivery action plans. The department will be in a position to brief the committee on proposed PFG actions once it reaches this stage of the process. Again, can I ask members are they content to note this or any comments? Kelly? Um, just to say that during New Decade New Approach there was a housing outcome agreed. Um, I don't see any further mention of that and we haven't heard from the department what that housing outcome could be developed to look like um, i'd be quite keen to ask the department when they're coming to brief us um, to explain what's happening with that housing outcome why it hasn't been included and what actions will be taken forward to deliver upon that a political agreement okay thank you we can do that as well any other comments members are content that i move on Sinead, your hand is up but i don't think you want to ask a question do you no no, sorry, Chair, it's one previous. No, you're all right. You're okay. Okay, members, then can I ask you to move to page 22, where you'll see a departmental response in relation to the PIP assessment contract. Um, the contract with Capita is due to expire, as we know, on the 31st of July 2021. But due to the COVID situation, the department is currently exploring an extension to the contract for up to 24 months. I know this has been brought up in committee in the past, so I'm just going to ask at this stage, any comments? Are you content to note that response? Happy enough. Go ahead, Thank Kelly. Sorry, I just think we should be um, asking the, the department to ensure that Marie Kavanagh's report on PIP, if there's any um, notes out of that, that that's taken into consideration when they are exploring the extension. Okay, we'll do. Sorry, Robin, go ahead. 
It's ju just a question, Chair, whether or not uh, Northern Ireland is in the same mm -hmm. position as England, Scotland and Wales, and that the other legislatives are extending for 24 months as well. We can ask that question also. It's a good question. Okay. <coughs> yep. We'll do that. Members agreed? <coughs> yes? Agreed. Agreed. Okay. We'll move on. And can I ask you then to turn to page 23? where you'll see a departmental response in relation to the Job Start programme. The reply provides a timeline of all decisions taken thus far in relation to the Job Start scheme. Again, this has been another issue that we have talked about weekly almost as well. Um, so can I just ask then, are members content with this response? Um, are any comments they wish to make on it? Content with the response? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. We'll move then on. Ask you to turn to page twenty-six, um, where you'll see a detail. Just sorry, sorry, chair. Go ahead, Mark. So, chair, just on that timeline, I'm doing my best to look at it on, on the screen here. This is all what happens in public, or what we already knew about, but we don't know exactly when when it got torpedoed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that was one of the questions we had asked a couple of weeks ago when the officials were in um, about exactly when did they know that they weren't going to have the money. Was that sort yeah. of it? Yeah. That still doesn't tell us that, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't particularly tell us that. We can't it doesn't say every, every, everything about that. Yeah. We can't go back, back and ask that question, Mark. Yeah, because that, that's the most important piece. Yeah, it is. You're quite right. Okay, we'll go back and ask that question, follow up from that letter then. Okay, Mark? <laughs> Okay, thanks. Okay, then, members, let me see. I've lost my where I am. We're going to page 26 now, I think we are. Yes. Um, you'll see a departmental response in relation to the COVID-19 Culture, Language, Arts and Heritage Programme. The department has apologised to the committee for delay in this response due to an administrative oversight. It provides information on the new criteria for applications and the differences in eligibility between the schemes. And I just say I welcome this scheme. Um, coming forward as well. Um, members, any comments or are they content to note this? Yes, sir. Yep, thank you. Sure. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Sinead. Yeah, it's just it's just on the, the Individuals Emergency Resilience Programme that opened on the 17th of December. Um, it closed on the 7th of January, um, but there's no, because I've been contacted recently just by um, individuals who are, who are keen to know when those grants are going to be paid out. Is there any way we could get an idea from the the, the department um, just on when people should be expecting payment of, you know, for, uh, from that programme? Yeah, and that was the arts one, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the individual emergency, uh, yeah, the resilience programme, yeah. the one yeah. that opened on the 17th of yep, December. Wait. We will certainly do that. We'll write off today then and ask that question also, Sinead. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Um, members content that I move on? Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, then. Can I ask you to turn to page 31 of your packs where you'll see a departmental response in relation to community transport? The Minister has instructed officials to work with DFI officials to discuss the issues facing the community transport sector and those that they support. Again, can I ask members any comments or content to note? Content to note, yes? Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Then can I ask members to turn to page 32 where you'll see a departmental reply in relation to the discretionary support fund. Um, the response outlines the two distinct avenues available to a universal credit applicant um, are to seek an advance while waiting for their first UC payment and separately if an immediate need uh, and facing a crisis situation to apply also for the UC contingency fund grant. I know uh, we, this this matter came up in the chamber as well 
on Tuesday during question time around the, uh, certainly the discretionary support and the difficulties. Um, I know I'd certainly asked the question around it, the difficulties people had in getting this support. Um, so I just wanted to ask members, are there any comments on this or content to note? Sure. Go ahead, Andy. Just, just two aspects. Um, I'd hope to get in the supplementary in the chamber in relation to the wider review of discretionary support. If the committee colleagues are in agreement, can we ask the minister if there's any consideration around the uh, the earnings limit? A further review of that in terms of discretionary support or the complete abolition of, of that uh, lower earnings limit? I know that was a subject of the uh, conversation at our stakeholder event as well. So, so that first of all, and also. Looking at the figures in relation to UC claims and the number of advances compared with contingency fund payments, um, it looks the, the contingency fund payments to me look incredibly low, um, which would highlight you know more needs to be done to advertise. I, I don't know what colleagues are like, but I'm still getting people telling me that they're not aware of the contingency fund. Um, they opted for the advance payment um, because it wasn't clear to them that they could avail of the contingency fund. No. So I, I think more needs to be done on that front. I think you're absolutely right. There have been issues. I hear the same in my own office. Um, there's issues around this, and it, it should be the default position, but it, it really is not the default position. And I know, going back to one of our first meetings here when we had the minister in in front of us, that was very much what she believed that she wanted to see, um, that people were not put into debt the, the moment they, they start on their universal credit journey. But yet we know that is happening time and time again. Um, so we know the changes need to be made. Kelly, you wanted to come in? Yes, um, thank you very much, Chair, and I concur with Andy. Um, the UCCF funds, if they've called it here, are extraordinarily low compared to the advances. You know, we can see there on page two of the document we have received, uh, 15, nearly 16,000 had received the advance loan, whereas it's only 2,500 received the contingency fund. That's stark because I don't know about you or any normal person out there, Chair, but if I was offered a grant instead of a loan, that wasn't you didn't have to repay, I think I'd be going for the grant. So I'd be expecting the figures actually to be reversed on that one. Um, to be honest, in the, the paragraphs above, it's all excuses. Um, you know, the DWP computer system says no, basically. Um, I think that there should be something. I think we need to clarify. And I think that the minister actually would agree with us that as a matter of course, that the Northern Ireland system needs to offer the contingency fund before the loans. Um, I just did a quick um, total up the comparison of discretionary support awards at the end. Um, over the four years, now I appreciate that the, the 2021 is only up to December, but there was £20.16 million over four years not provided through the discretionary support allocation to people in need out there. That's horrendous. Um, and I just think that it's it's not viable. And in this year, or the last sorry, financial year, I know we only have figures up as far as December, while there was £21.49 million of a budget, only 13.5 was spent by the end of December. Now, I expect that figure to go up. But that's still an underspend of just shy of £8 million. Um, this isn't money that we should be shy in providing for people who are in need, especially during a pandemic. Um, I would be keen to support the minister um, to consider how... I know that there's talk about a review, but we can review to we're blue in the face. The, the change needs to happen now within processes. I'd be keen to, to ask the minister what actions are being taken by the department to flip this on its head to ensure that the the contingency funding is offered before the loan. It shouldn't be a matter of process that we put people in debt first. 
Um, I'm just not buying the excuses that, you know, the two schemes are administered separately with, you know, UC and DWP. It's, it's all skirting around the issue that people are taking, are being offered and taking loans and putting themselves in debt at a time when they don't maybe have the ability to think wider, can I afford this loan or what implications is this going to have for me? I think that the contingency fund issues, that that discretionary support should be provided first. And I would also ask again, as I think we have all asked for over and over again, is can we please have a breakdown of the criteria that is provided to staff within the system that allows them to make their discretionary decisions? because I believe that the discretion is part of the barrier here. Okay, no, thank you for that, Kelly. Uh, Karen, waiting to come in. Thank you, Chair. Uh, just similar to Andy and Kelly, um, the contingency fund should be the first offering, and we know that it's not. I know the Minister would agree with that as well. Um, uh, and I welcome the review of the discretionary fund. I know it's an all-hour review, but I know the Minister is keen to get this right. Because as Kelly said, I know as a local MLA for many years, I've been asking those questions. So we need to be supporting people um, at the first point of call. And there's, there's, it's the improvements that we, we expected to happen hasn't happened. So um, just concur with Kelly and Andy and, and welcome the review. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you, Karen. Okay, there's a couple of proposals there from Andy and Kelly. Members happy enough with those proposals? Yes? Yes, please. Andy, did you want to come in again? Uh, if I can be a just to come back in, I don't know if others have had the, this issue, but I'm coming across an issue with people who, um, at the point of going on to universal credit, aren't aware that they need to apply for HC1 uh, uh, for help with healthcare costs, uh, uh, dental and optical support, and it's only at the point where they've then received that care do they realise that they, they had to apply through a process. Can we maybe write to the department for, for more information on that and ascertain how many people actually hadn't applied for HC1? Uh, I think then there's, an H, there's a health care certificate issued to them, um, which means then they get support with their health care costs in that respect. Okay, no other We'll ask that as well. Yeah, okay. All right, members, um, happy enough then we move on to the next item, which is at page 35, and that's a letter from the Charity Commission in relation to the review of complaints. The Charity Commission has appointed independent counsel to conduct a review of the complaints arising from the Commission's regulations, or regulation of the Charities Loch Ness Rescue and the Disabled Police Officers Association to establish whether there are lessons the Commission can learn from the handling of the cases which have not, uh, which have not yet been learned. Um, the terms of reference for this review, or this review have been provided. Members, are you content to note or any comments? And this is just on the terms of reference. It's not on specifics. Andy? Yeah. Declaring interest as a charity trustee. Okay, thank you, Andy. Any comment on, on this at this stage? Are you happy enough that we note that? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, thank mm -hmm. you. Okay, members, that's sure, sorry, great. Can I, can I, sorry, like I think it's maybe prudent that we as committee, I know this is obviously the department's approach to this, but I, I do know and I think we have been sent correspondence from numerous different individuals who would highlight their concern with the way in which they've interacted or interfaced with the commission. And it's important that obviously they, they, they have the opportunity to feed into the review. Uh, and I think we as a committee might want to uh, consider what we want to do in terms of looking at things as well. But we can't obviously um, preempt uh, the department's work. Yeah, no, I know and it has been something that has come up in committee time and time again that we do want a briefing um, on the various issues to do with the Charities Commission. And I know that will happen, but um, I, I mean, we can 
We can certainly we could get a briefing on the terms of reference if you're interested in that. But I think at this stage, um, it, it's more the it's other questions that we want to be asking. Yeah. So members happy enough? We, we move on from that. Yeah. Okay. Okay, members, well done. We got three matters arising there within half an hour, so that was better than what I thought it was going to be. Um, can I ask the members if you turn the agenda at item five? And again, I'm going to have to do a little bit of reading here, so if you just bear with me. Um, it's the departmental responses to raise to raise paper on the licensing bill and response on the licensed premises mapping exercise. Members, you've been provided at page 41 with uh, this response to questions from RAISE. Um, the response highlights that there are a number of areas that we may wish to bear in mind going forward on some questions for future evidence sessions. For example, with the University of Stirling, where their research is seeking to address gaps in the evidence based on extended opening hours. The response indicates that the department is working with its professional services unit to develop an evaluation plan for the new licensing laws. Members, I propose we seek more information about this evaluation plan and also in any guidance documents in development. It will be important for us um, as we get to deliberations to be confident that there will be a robust monitoring and evaluation of the new law and good guidance will be in place. So I think that is vitally important um, that we hear where they are with that evaluation plan. Um, also, member, or just on that part, then any more any comments on that part of, of the paper that I've just read? I know happy enough for me to go on. Um, yeah. and members, just inform members that uh, starting at page 50, they've been provided with the results of the departmental mapping exercise of licensed premises carried out in 2017. Maps of both Northern Ireland and for individual towns are included for off-licenses, hotels and pubs. Members of the research service of the Assembly had investigated the possibility of preparing similar maps further back in time for comparison. <coughs> However, Reyes has advised the clerk that having contacted the, the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service, it will not be possible to compile archaeology. Arche I can't say that word, data, for example, from 2010, as these older records are paper-based only, and it would be a huge task to retrieve, search, and compile this material manually. RAISE has received a large number of mainly PDF files from NICTS for 2018-19, but as little will have changed from the work done in 2017 by the department, I do not propose that we ask them to undertake this large amount of work um, to map the most recent 1819 data. Are members content to use then the departmental mapping exercise as a recent picture of distribution of licensed premises? Kelly, go ahead. Thank you, Chair. I just want to say thanks very much um, for whoever did this work originally and for Reyes to bring it to our attention. Um, it is very comprehensive and I, I imagine the, the people who were involved in its hearts were broke trying to find out the information. My concern is that this sort of highlights just how difficult it is to find out where all of our license holders are. Um, you know, as, it, as Reyes has highlighted, you know, you'd have to go through each individual district court and go through all the petty sessions to find out where the licenses are. Um, it's shocking to think in this day and age that we don't have a compiled list. And other than these maps, this will be the first time that the committee has actually seen where some, well, hopefully this is, this is a completely, you know, it's a bit out of date, but it's, it's, it's as correct as we can get it. Um, this where, you know, all the licensed premises are. Um, it makes it extraordinarily difficult. Um, I, I think that this is just a, 
some sort of a problem within the licensing system that it's so disjointed and while the department are bringing together the legislation there must be a better way of managing and controlling and, and um, listing you know where all these premises are how do you how do you defend or protect an area if you're saying that there are lots of licensed premises there if you don't if you can't actually get the evidence in your hand to to show how many licenses are there i think it's um it's a, a thanks back to Reyes, you know, for pulling this together. But um, it just raises concerns for me with this licensing legislation that there still is no comprehensive um, gathering of the data or listing of the data on license holders moving forward. No, thanks for that, Kelly. And I agree with you somewhat on that. Um, I wonder, I don't know if we asked the question, if individual councils hold a, a database um, for all of their, their licensed premises within their area because they would need to have that information for their, um, uh, what is it, I can't even remember what, which area it is. My brain is not working today, folks, sorry about this. Um, but no, I, just, I remember whenever I sat on council, we would have got you know a lot of the, the, the legislation and the entertainment's licenses and various different stuff would have come through council, so it's maybe worth asking. Um, we could ask councils if they hold individual databases on each of their council areas. On the issue, maybe. Um, Robin? Uh, thank you, Chair. And I know this is only a very minor question, but the definition of an off license. Yeah. Um, if, I, if I look at page 99, off licenses, Belfast 3, there are two off licenses there. One is in George Best, Belfast City Airport, and the other is in some premises down at the docks. Uh, presume it's with Steneline or something of that nature. And those really aren't off licenses as we understand off licenses. I wonder if it's possible, Chair, just sort of a minor question in the overall context, <clears throat> but to get a definition of what an off license actually is. Okay. How the public understands an off license. Yeah, off sales. Okay, no, we can ask that as well. Karen, did you want to come in again? No. No, Chair. Your hand's still up, that's all. That's that no, all. Okay. No, no problem. Okay, members, um, then are we happy enough then that we move on from that? And again, thank you to Reyes, because I think it hadn't been for them, we wouldn't have known about this. They actually were able to, to find that out, so thank you. Um, then, members, just before we start our briefing session on the bill, there are a couple of related matters um, to discuss. First of all, members, can I ask our members in agreement that we now publish all of the submissions we have received on the bill on the Assembly website? Can I get agreement with that? Agreed. Great, mm -hmm. thank you. And then, members, you're aware that there are a number of clauses in the bill that have an impact on young people, and a number of committees have worked with the engagement services over the past few months to successfully deliver virtual stakeholder events. Uh, the Kirk has done some initial work with the Assembly Engagement Team and has now suggested that we hold a virtual Zoom stakeholder event in early March to ensure we capture the views of young people. Now, members, this will take place in the evening, all being well, of Tuesday the 9th of March at 7pm, and that's because of a lot of the young people we don't want to eat into their, um, their school day. So the format will likely see young people split into small groups to share their views on the relevant elements of the bill, and the groups um, brought back into a central virtual space for a feedback session. Um, we would hope that members could attend and hear the feedback. Members, um, 
Are you in agreement that the clerk continues to develop this event with the engagement team? Yes, yeah? yeah, good stuff. Okay, thank you. All right, members, we're now going to move on to our evidence sessions. So I'll ask you then to turn to agenda item six, where we will have uh, the Wine and Spirit Trade Association briefing on the licensing and registration of clubs amendment bill. You'll find this at page 183 of your meeting pack. And then can I welcome to the meeting Miles Bale. Um, Miles, you're very welcome. I'm glad you could join us today. Um, could I ask you then to um, give some opening remarks and limit your time to five to ten minutes, if that's okay? Miles, we can't hear you. So we're going to see if, if I don't know whether it's your end. You check uh, your, good morning, Brett. Can, can you hear, hear me now? now? Yeah, I can hear you now, Miles. Fantastic. Sorry, the bit that you missed was me checking whether you could hear me. Uh, so at least uh, we know the technology is working. Apologies for that. Um, thank you very much for uh, uh, having me uh, today. I'm sorry it has to be virtual. Um, uh, I've not been there for a while. Um, I regret it maybe sometime before I am again. Um, having just come in at the end of the conversation, um, before I do my quick introduction, if it helps, um, a quick rule of thumb for the difference between off-trade and on-trade, it's um, uh, purchase of a product for uh, off-premise consumption or alternatively on-premise consumption. So that, that, that may help the committee a little in terms of the difference between off-trade and on-trade licenses. Um, just quickly, uh, Chair, thank you. I'll do a quick introduction, if I may. Just quickly want to set out who we are, uh, who I represent, um, how we work, uh, five key points in relation to the licensing and registration of clubs uh, bill and its proposed amendments. What I will try and not to do is to repeat our written evidence, where I'm very happy to take any questions uh, afterwards. Um, first of all, the Wine and Spirit Trade Association, we are, as it says on the tin, a trade association and the largest one in the UK. We're unique in that we represent more than one type of product, so both wines and spirits, but also producers, retailers, and all businesses at uh, various points along the supply chain. Uh, in particular, we have a strong retail uh, membership, uh, most of, uh, if not all of, the large supermarkets, uh, but also some of those um, uh, things like uh, wine clubs and those delivering direct to home. The way we try and work with lawmakers in whatever part of the UK, uh, and indeed occasionally beyond, is uh, to certainly in giving evidence to try and help um, lawmakers focus on what the aim of a bill or amendments are, whether the proposals being made are sort of sufficiently clear and targeted, uh, and doing so we try and look at the evidence that we have seen across the UK and what it tells us, and in particular whether proposals are enforceable, workable and proportionate. So I'll try and uh, summarise just quickly, I think, five main points uh, that come out of our uh, view of the amendments being proposed. <clears throat> First of all, um, uh, you know, summary, I'd say we're supportive of plans to modernise the licensing laws in Northern Ireland. Uh, we think that's probably overdue. Um, however, we don't believe that um, all of the proposals are going to achieve the aims which are specifically about tackling alcohol misuse and promoting responsible consumption. Uh, so I'll try and flag some of those up, but as I said, the quick um, five points that I would uh, flag are, 
Number one, we're, we're a little disappointed that the amendments fail to address what we think is the most fundamental issue in, uh, in the licensing regime currently, uh, and that's the requirement to have license tills in supermarkets. The 75 to 25 split, I understand, is, uh, is, is pretty rigid, but the strong reasons we would suggest uh, that needs to be included in scope um, are evidence, particularly recently from its relaxation, um, the advent of technology, uh, I mean, some of it already in practice uh, and lots of it coming, particularly with support of the Home Office uh, in the UK, uh, sorry, in, in London specifically. Um, COVID and the experience of COVID where uh, the relaxation has, uh, has happened and I think works very well. Uh, and finally, alignment with England and Wales. Uh, I think our bottom line here is that um, the proposals to sort of um, ignoring this 75-25 split probably don't take account of the way a retailing operation happens currently, the way customers uh, want to behave, uh, and the fact that unlicensed tills are used very irregularly, and those who are under 18 tend to use new technology uh, to a greater extent than others. Second main point, I think, would be around loyalty schemes, uh, where we think uh, there is a risk that the proposals being made are untargeted and would have unintended consequences, uh, particularly because, um, uh, you know, bluntly customers very much like loyalty schemes and local communities benefit heavily from them, uh, particularly uh, charitable giving. Uh, and, and of course, rewards are not instant. So we, we don't see uh, or quite understand the reason and the rationale for trying to prohibit them. Um, point three, uh, we think some of the proposals um, uh, look like they don't fully understand the pretty stringent and robust safeguards that are in place for a business model where uh, alcohol is delivered directly to home in, in you know, leave safe areas, uh, but deliveries directly to home where they could be collected by any member of uh, the family uh, and probably over-exaggerates any risk there. Uh, there is very, very little evidence uh, uh, of, of any problems with miners collecting what will be uh, thought through purchases in advance by an adult uh, of usually, you know, certainly a lot larger than one bottle uh, uh, purchases. Um, fourth point, um, we think all aspects of selling and advertising alcohol are pretty heavily regulated and controlled. Um, Recognition that retailers um, uh, are very keen on self-regulation should be understood. Um, we don't understand uh, why there need to be additional regulatory controls, but I'm very happy to go into some detail on that. And finally, last point uh, before I finish an introduction, simply to say that we think there are significant benefits in Northern Ireland legislation being updated in line with that in England and Wales. Uh, and I could perhaps tell the committee a little bit about some of the proposals that the Home Office are looking into around the advent of technology and how that should be used to a greater extent for particularly age verification. Uh, there's quite a lot of that already, but there's a lot more to come and an initiative underway in London. Uh, thank you, Chair. Thank you, Miles. Thank you for that. Um, uh, I suppose it just take you back then to your first point of your five issues, um, and that's to do with the, the supermarket checkouts. Um, 
Can you explain to us why we have, because I, I actually don't know the reason behind it, why it is a 75-25 split that we have here in Northern Ireland. And I do know that we did have the relaxation. I remember hearing it um, on a news bulletin a couple of months ago um, during COVID um, that there was that relaxation and that seemed to work pretty well. I haven't heard anything um, against um, how that worked. Just if you could just tell the committee why that is in place. Um, to, to be honest, I'm unable to explain it, uh, only in that it's the only place in the UK where that separation exists. Um, uh, we don't see a sort of statistical or evidence of um, different behaviour. I think it was aimed at uh, you know, encouraging customers, uh, or rather perhaps discouraging them, uh, adding alcohol to their shops because then they wouldn't be able to go what would be assumed to be a shorter queue. Um, in practice, we understand from our retailers that the you know the twenty five percent of tills that are uh, not uh, uh, not licensed um, tend to be you know they have to be manned, uh, but they are far less busy than the others. Uh, the benefit over the COVID experience of relaxing them is um, you know a better experience for customers, more efficient for stores to run. Uh, and we we did a survey in advance of this session to see if there had been any problems with. Uh, you know that system. Uh, any any difficulties with perhaps underage purchases or problematic drinking uh, as a result of purchases uh, due to the changes and found none. Okay. No. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I certainly I know in my experience in any of the supermarkets that I shop in um, that there uh, there there will always be queues at those tills where where the alcohol is sold, and generally very little. Uh, my understanding of it was always that. Here in Northern Ireland, we have a great tradition of when you turn 16 and you're maybe staying on at school to do your A-levels, you get a job in your local supermarket and therefore you would be unable to work on one of those tills because you're under 18. That was always my understanding. But I would imagine the vast majority of people that do work in our supermarkets are over the age of 18. Um, so it just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why there is that split. Um, then I just want to ask you then about the loyalty schemes. This has been brought up before in committee. Um, so it has by other witnesses, um, and you talked there about the unintended consequences. I just want to ask you, uh, to be brutally honest, in reality, do you see how this can possibly work? Whenever we're part, uh, our supermarkets, for example, are part of larger supermarkets uh, right across the UK and beyond, um, that we would have to have a very different type of loyalty card here. Um, you know, is that really going to work, uh, in all honesty? Or will we actually? It could actually we'd be penalised and say that we don't have loyalty cards here in Northern Ireland for anything, whether that's Sainsbury's, Marks and Spencer's, Tesco's, wherever. Just give just give an honest opinion on that. Uh, I mean, look, I think the honest short answer is no. Uh, I don't see how it would work. I mean, if of course it becomes law, then our retailer members would would have to do something different. But you're absolutely right. One of the one of the options would be to remove any loyalty schemes uh, at all because that would be probably the simplest. Uh, I'm not sure that's, that would be the outcome or that's what they'd want, but uh, it, it, it would be significantly easier to make no changes at all. Um, it, it is worth saying that the Scottish Government did look at uh, something similar uh, and in particular um, uh, concluded that loyalty cards should be treated in the same way as cash. Uh, um, uh, that is to say, no, no restrictions. Um, they did distinguish uh, coupons from uh, vouchers, but you know, in, in general terms for the supermarkets, these loyalty uh, cards, you know, you build up points and you're able to uh, 
you know, recoup the benefits and spend them on any products you like. And there's, there's certainly no evidence that they are sort of spent disproportionately on alcohol. It's about uh, it's about all of the shopping that you might be able to do at a supermarket. And of course, local community charities uh, do benefit significantly as well. It's part of the uh, the retailers offer to the community uh, to give something back. Okay, look, thank you for that. And just my last question to you then is around what you talked about at the very end was this new age verif verification technology. Um, just if you could give us just a, a, a snapshot of what that, that looks like. Sure, yeah. So um, there is already a significant amount of technology, uh, and this is particularly relevant to. Um, online retailers, so those that don't have any uh, any sort of high street or, or other uh, other street uh, premises, can't visit a shop. Um, they have very stringent uh, uh, arrangements in place for age verification at point of purchase, um, uh, and that tends to be um, uh, you know uh, it takes a bit of time for the customer. It's become quicker. The technology is getting better. Um, the new technology that I'm referring to and where the Home Office has um, instigated that they have a uh, what they're describing as a regulatory sandbox initiative, which I personally don't think sounds very attractive, but the, uh, the idea is to start looking at uh, different ways of providing age verification. Um, I, I am on uh, the board of something called the Proof of Age Standard Scheme that's looking at um, uh, particularly standards around future practice, but to give the committee an example, um, it may soon be possible for individuals to have QR codes with which they can, at the same time as you know, using a smartphone to purchase uh, whatever their product is, in this case, alcohol, they can also use the QR code to verify their age, um, uh, in which case all of that is done um, you know, technologically. Now that works just as well in store as it would um, uh, online. Uh, and actually, that is the bit that the Home Office is keen for the industry to help with so that solutions are developed that are sort of fit for the future uh, and not just for now. So I think, you know, the, the bottom line here is I think it's probably quite difficult to legislate in an area that is moving extremely quickly, uh, particularly if you're thinking about, you know, young people, they use this technology, uh, the take up of the technology is much, much faster. So I think anything that will be introduced along the lines proposed in the current bill the current amendments would be out of date incredibly quickly and of course not in line uh, with England and Wales where some of these um, things are being looked at currently. Okay, thank you Miles for that. Um, members, I have Karen and then I have Mark waiting to come in, so any other members can they press their, their hands up button. So I'll go to you Karen. Thank you Chair um, and thank you Miles um, for your presentation. Um, I, I just wanted to come on and say it's important for me to raise the good work that was undertaken by Retail and Alcohol Standards Group in regards to the Community Alcohol Partnership in Derry, um, which was up until 2013. I worked for an organisation, uh, Bogside and Brandywell Health Forum, and we had a project, um, Drink Think, um, uh, and I know of many other groups that was involved, and it was it was great work that was done at that time. Um, I know you you said in your paper it would be something that you would look at, um, uh, you know, coming back to in terms of more community alcohol partnerships here, and I and I do think that that's what we need to look at and, and continue on that work. The chair touched a bit on. I wanted to ask around the loyalty scheme. Um, he had said around the bill had fought, has fallen short. To consider the, the wider community um, and charity benefits. Just Miles, 
I wouldn't be aware of, apart from the loyalty scheme that you get yourself, you know, your QR in the supermarket, um, I wouldn't be aware, obviously, of the, the wider community benefits. Um, uh, could you give us a wee bit more detail on, on, on that, what it looks like, you know, what, you know, what does, what is the benefits, what groups get, what charities would benefit and how it works? Um, I, yes, I, I can give you. It's probably only limited because each um, each supermarket uh, and retailer do it differently, and they do it differently in different communities. But um, the sort of common the common uh, threads are that um, uh, you know, as far as I'm aware, all of the loyalty schemes um, uh, allow those supermarkets to um, make donations. Uh, locally, uh, and they're very keen on doing it locally. Some, for example, the co-op um, have, I think, a minimum uh, amount uh, that they provide in terms of percentage uh, to the local community, uh, but they're, they're all sort of tailored to the local community and it's the community that, that benefits. So there's a, there's a direct relationship between uh, you know, the health of the business uh, in a particular area and uh, the charitable benefit the other side uh, of, of, uh, of business being conducted. Um, I think what the, what our retailer members are particularly worried about um, is that if this legislation came through, um, I don't know whether it would go as far as, uh, as the chair has suggested and, and the loyalty schemes would be ended completely, but certainly you would expect, because it's all proportionate to the amount of business uh, done and the amount of uh, interactivity on the, on the loyalty scheme, uh, the donation, you know, the donating would definitely reduce, so there would be less available to the community. And I, and I, it doesn't appear to me that that's being considered uh, in putting these amendments together. Thank you, Miles. Just one last point, uh, Karen, if I may. Community Alcohol Partnerships um, continues to do incredibly well in, in, in England, Wales, and um, actually increasingly well in Scotland. Um, uh, yes, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm also one of the directors on Community Alcohol Partnerships, and, and certainly I'm very, very happy to reiterate the offer. You know, we'd be very keen to see Community Alcohol Partnerships um, increase in number in Northern Ireland as well. So if we can if we can help with that, um, and for the other benefit of the other uh, of the other members of the, co the committee, community alcohol partnerships are set up locally with sort of seed corn funding from uh, community uh, community alcohol partnerships, the organisation to tackle underage drinking and associated uh, uh, associated you know, disbenefits to the local community. Um, we find they're extremely effective. Um, and we'd certainly be happy to have a look at any uh, any proposed areas. So if any, anyone on the committee has areas where they have problems with uh, underage drinking in particular, we, we'd be very happy to look at it. De uh, the Dairy Cat was extremely successful, uh, so successful that it, that, that it wound up, if you like, um, which is a strange way of looking at success, but um, uh, but very happy to look at that further with, with, with any members of the committee. It, it was Miles. It was it was actually excellent, and, and what it did was, I think it it built and formed relationships, um, and and I think that was the success of it, probably, and and it's winding up, um, because those relationships have continued on, and the great work, and people can pick up the phone, and if there is a problem, and work together. So I know that that's continuing. But thank you very much, Miles, for the update. Okay, thanks, Karen. Um, can I bring Mark in, Mark Durkin? Thank you, Chair, and thanks, Miles, for uh, coming along today, and thank you for your, your written submission as well. I, I, I was having a wee look at last night, so correct me if I've picked it, <laughs> this bit up 
uh, wrong from it. You, but you say in your written submission that there's no evidence that alcohol advertising affects consumption levels or antisocial behaviour. So just to take the first point on consumption, that would kind of beg the question, then what's the point of advertising alcohol at all? So could you just clarify that? Are you saying that there's no evidence whatsoever or that you don't dispute the evidence that advertising alcohol causes or correlates with increased sales and consumption? So, uh, so uh, uh, to be clear, there is no evidence that uh, there is a link at all between advertising and harmful consumption. Um, and, and that is what uh, so it's harmful. And the bill is sorry. Oh, no. Sorry, sorry, mate. It's not. It's just. A, I don't think the word harmful was in the written submission. Well, sorry. That's the that's the aim of the bill. So, yeah, I agree. We don't see uh, any relationship uh, between uh, advertising and harmful consumption. Okay, thank you. And then, could you say maybe just a wee bit more about how? Implementing additional age checks upon delivery would lead to a substantial increase in costs for suppliers. And has there been any research done on the amount uh, that you would project such verifications would cost? Um, uh, so that last point is the most difficult uh, to answer. Look, I, I think the um, we think there's a misunderstanding of how much pre-purchase age verification and requirements. Um, uh, you know, are undertaken by any of our retailers, um, uh, then it depends on the retailer's business model. Um, uh, but, the, you know, for, for example, for a, a large supermarket, um, you know, they uh, now train their drivers in the Challenge 25 initiative, which was set up by the Retail of Alcohol Standards Group that I'm here to represent. Um, so a driver is trained in exactly the same way as a store uh, a store worker would be a store employee to check if anyone looks under 25 before uh, they are able to purchase the alcohol. Of course, when it's delivered at home, it's already been purchased, but they have been trained in the same way. So, uh, you know, they're, they're trained to ask the right questions. Um, where it becomes more difficult is for online businesses who have a third party delivering for them. Um, they, uh, you know, as previously described, have you know extremely stringent tests pre-purchase, um, but they're online and it's about who is purchasing the alcohol. Um, for them, it would be incredibly expensive um, to introduce some additional check. Um, it's a third party often who's delivering the products uh, and they're not trained in the same way. And of course, they're not a direct employee of the company. So it's for that, com that type of business in particular, uh, for whom it will be extremely expensive. Um, we're also, uh, you know, very unclear if there's evidence that this is at all a problem. Uh, I mean, typically those sorts of business that I've just described, um, you know, whoever is purchasing is likely to be purchasing, they probably can't purchase less than a minimum number of bottles, um, you know, six or 12. Um, if it's wine, uh, you know, that's unlikely to be something that, uh, you know, somebody in a household is ordering and wouldn't be watching out for. You know, what, under what sort of circumstances would a minor be collecting those? Well, possibly if, um, if the individual, uh, you know, is self-isolating perhaps or unwell or disabled. Um, anyway, we think the risk is incredibly low uh, that that would lead to problematic drinking by particularly a minor. 
Um, in terms of the actual costs, it, it definitely depends on the business model. Um, but it's as much about, you know, uh, you know, could you, you know, if the risk is low, how would you make it even lower? And that might result in someone needing to be there on the spot, which is you know, definitely cost prohibitive. And we would certainly say completely disproportionate to the problem where the evidence tells us um, that there is no problem at all. No, I don't underestimate the, 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 the difficulty of this and, you know, the overburden drivers or del del delivery uh, people either. It sort of <laughs> reminds me of an incident one time when I was canvassing and I went to the door and a young fellow, the most important of 15, answered and he, was, he had a bottle of beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other and I, I asked him, are there any adults in? And, and he replied, does it look like it? <laughs> Uh, so just just one final wee question is, we've taken a lot of evidence from local alcohol suppliers who support licences for tap rooms. Do you have any view on that? Um, actually, that's a, um, I, I, I'm not sure I know exactly what a tap room would be in a Northern Irish context, but if it's for... Um, if it's the same as the on-off premise uh, distinction, so this is for, for consumption on premise. Yes, yes, sir. So I, I think you know probably not in that most of my members uh, do not run uh, licensed operations for on-premise um, uh, activity, but but you know in in general, um, provided the on-premise activity is 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 run appropriately as a bar or a pub or a club or a restaurant would be then you would expect there to be someone with responsibility and training in place to ensure that uh, you know, uh, uh, the, license, the terms of the licence are stuck to and, uh, uh, and people are drinking responsibly in that venue. Okay, now that, that, that's useful. Thank you very much, Miles. Okay, thank you, Mark. I have no other members I can see here with their hands up, but um, I'm going to give a wee moment to see if anybody does put their hand up. Um, nope, nobody wants to ask any further questions. Um, that's okay. All right, Miles, look, thank you very much for your briefing. Um, some interesting points made there. Thank you. Oh, hold on. Sinead has put her hand up. I'm going to bring Sinead in. Sorry. Sinead? Thank you, Chair. Um, sorry, just couldn't get my hand raised there quick enough. Yeah, I just want to follow on from Mark's point there. I just find it slightly concerning the, the, that piece in your evidence there were. Um, you said no evidence has been provided showing there is a link between alcohol advertising and, and increased consumption when you know, I've just done a quick Google search and, you know, there's any amount of research papers which show that there is a link, especially um, among young people who are exposed to alcohol, uh, alcohol uh, advertising at a young age. And we know there's a link between those that are already have uh, or who are already suffering with a, an alcohol related um, problem and advertising. So. I'm just concerned about that assertion um, in the written submission and you know there's no evidence certainly you haven't provided any evidence to back up your claim so I'm just a wee bit concerned that we're you know that that's maybe just slightly misleading. Well let, let, let me try and clear that up as best I can. Um, um, we, we don't have any evidence of a direct link um, uh, and by that I mean you know can anyone provide any evidence that there's advertising that results in uh, immoderate or excessive consumption. I think what we do know very well is that um, the most, uh, those who drink most irresponsibly are least responsive um, 
to uh, you know influence in their behaviour. So, for example, we often have conversations about whether price makes a difference. Um, you know, a, a very large amount of alcohol, uh, immoderate alcohol consumption, um, is consumed by a very small element of the population. Um, uh, in Northern Ireland, I don't know exactly what the figures are compared with with, with, with the UK. Um, but uh, it, the problem there is a changing behaviour of a minority. Um, so that's, that's where the evidence is very clear. Um, uh, for, for, for young people, I mean, I think one of the problems we have with this, you know, the proposals to amend the bill, are they talk, um, you know, what advertising are we proposing not being allowed within 200 metres of a store? Because if a store is not allowed uh, to advertise, and if you're a farm shop, for example, uh, and you produce some of your own products, um, does this prevent you from advertising uh, within 200 metres? And does it prevent a competitor from advertising within 200 metres of your store? So I think there are things that you can do and you can, you know, there are plenty of examples around the UK of um, if you want to do something on advertising, some of the things that you could look at, but the evidence for what works is really not there. Um, the additional element I think we point to quite strongly is um, the self-regulation of the alcoholic drinks industry in the UK it is sort of used as an example by other industries. Um, it's extremely strong um, and it's particularly focused on um, those under 18. So the evidence um, that uh, the way the alcoholic drinks uh, industry regulates itself to prevent advertising to minors uh, has a very very strong effect. So it's the it's the you know we drink across the UK we drink fully a fifth less alcohol now than we did 15 years ago. That's fallen fastest so you know more than 20 percent amongst the under 26. So I think the evidence is very strongly that uh, that you know the the those under 26 are the cohort that are least affected and least likely to drink. Can't hear you, Sinead. Sorry, Tara. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I'm just saying, I mean, I can, I've just done a quick Google search there, and, you know, there's any amount of articles, some from some, some which are uh, sponsored by the British government, some which are um, EU-based research, which will contradict uh, the submission in your in your written submission there. So, and I think, again, we're getting back to this issue in terms of advertising, and we've had it at least three weeks now, where there's a slight confusion around what the bill actually proposes uh, in terms of advertising. And it wouldn't be that larger supermarkets would gain a competitive advantage over smaller farm shops, for example. The, the bill proposes to apply the restrictions on advertising across the board, uh, whether you're a, an ASDA or whether you're a smaller uh, producer in terms of being able to advertise within, uh, what does it say here, within, oh, I, I can't find it here, but it's within um, so many metres from your from your store. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. not that there would be any competitive advantage for anyone else. The, the bill proposes to apply that across the board, um, you know, fairly. So I think we just need to make sure that we're just really understanding what actually the bill proposes in terms of that. Yes, I, I definitely agree with that last one. I'm very happy to look at, uh, at the evidence you suggest if you want to, to send it to us. I'm happy to give you a view. Um, we certainly agree that the proposals are not clear. Uh, so what you can and can't do within 200 metres of your or someone else's store, which you know implies to me you know, the greatest respect that it might not have been thought through properly. Uh, and the second thing I think is around 
you know, what exactly, you know, is the definition of advertising here? So what about non-alcoholic products or lower alcohol products that share the same brand as an alcoholic product or it's glassware rather than alcohol or clothing? Um, uh, so I think that's that's some of the thing, uh, the, the, some of the elements of the bill and the amendments that are not clear to us, and it's quite difficult to engage on that. As I say, the you know the the full gambit of kind of um, restrictions and uh, uh, the way companies behave according to ASA, CAP, the Portman Group, um, the work that we do through Drinkaware. I think all of those self-regulatory elements um, uh, don't appear to have been taken into account with the with the drafting of the bill. Um, so I think we, we would need to understand a bit more detail about what is being proposed because it, it, I agree with you, it's not clear. Okay, fair enough. Thank you, Miles. Okay, thanks, Sinead. Okay, no other members have indicated that they want to come in. So, Miles, again, can I say um, a very big thank you. Sorry, Miles, do you want to sure, come back and say something? Well, Chair, I just, it was just one thing that no one has raised, which whether the committee might be able to help us, actually. But... Um, there's a, an amendment uh, or a proposal for an amendment related to vending machines, yeah. um, and, and that's an area where we're extremely unclear um, what the aim is because, um, you know, what is the definition of a vending machine? So if I just give two examples, um, you know, if, if there were a sort of a, you know, somewhere in a, uh, in, in a supermarket, um, you know, a, a space where you could, you know, free pour some alcohol to test or try it. I think, you know, we, we would worry about that, but it simply doesn't exist. Whereas if you were thinking about a sort of a drop box, uh, so for example, now you often have in uh, supermarkets, you know, some lockable cabinets where your shopping can be picked and uh, left for you. And then you come along with a code uh, and it's a unique code and it's changed every time and you pick up your uh, shopping there and it might include alcohol. We think that, you know, if that was within scope of a vending machine, that would be a, a very bad proposal because, um, you know, that, of course, is a way of, uh, you know, improving a service. Uh, and certainly, you know, with things like COVID, um, you know, that is a better way than queuing up with a whole load of others in front of, um, in front of cash tills. So we would really need to understand what is in scope with a vending machine to be able to comment in more detail on that proposal. Okay, look, thank you for that, Miles. I hadn't, um, no one else has brought that issue up around that sort of click and collect um, style that more and more of us are using in our supermarkets. Um, so that is something then that we can then ask the department um, around that. As I say, that's the first that's been brought up. So thank you for highlighting that issue. Um, look, thank you again, Miles. Um, really interesting um, evidence session. Um, so thank you for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, members, um, at this stage, I just propose a very quick um, comfort break before we move on to our next session. Sorry, but before we do that, Robin wants to come in and say something. No, just uh, to, um, Miles raised uh, uh, work being done by the Home Office on um, age identification. Yeah. It might be useful for us to try and understand what that uh, work includes and um, where it is in terms of home of office uh, progression of the work. Yeah, I, and I think that's probably not a bad idea, actually, because he did say, whenever I asked him the question around it, that some of our uh, regulations, or some of our legislation will be null and void because of it, so it might be 
an idea um, to see where that is and have the department looked at that information as well. No, that's okay. Members, again, um, just propose a, a very short break um, and then we'll be back soon. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. 
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. Okay, members, we're going to move on then to agenda item seven, which is a briefing from Tourist, Tourism NI, again on the licensing and registration of clubs amendment bill. You'll find uh, the papers for this agenda item at page 193 of your meeting pack. Can I then welcome Gary Quaid and Rosemary McHugh to the meeting? Um, uh, yep, we're we'll putting them in. Uh, Gary, I think it's yourself that is going to begin the briefing, and you have up to 10 minutes to brief the committee, so please go ahead. Uh, good morning, Chair and Committee. Just checking everyone can hear me okay? We can indeed, Gary. Okay, um, listen, uh, thanks very much. Um, Tourism and I are delighted to be here today uh, to offer evidence in relation to the proposed bill amendments and really to demonstrate how changes to, to those proposals have the potential to enhance the attractiveness of Northern Ireland as a, as a tourism destination. Uh, so my name is Gary Quaid and I'm the Food and Drink Experience Development Officer at Tourism NI and I'm joined today by Rosemary McHugh who is the Director of Product Development within the organisation. And committee members will be aware that Tourism NI have been supportive of changes to liquor licence legislation since the original consultation um, in 2012. And we believe that the introduction of a number of measures that are proposed within the bill has the potential to provide vital support to businesses and to help rebuild our tourism and hospitality industry in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So our submission to this consultation really focuses on those aspects of the licensing uh, laws that we feel with greater flexibility can facilitate uh, further tourism development and improvement of the experience that we offer to our visitors. And this includes the proposals to modernise the licensing laws around the Easter period, which is a key holiday in the tourism calendar for Northern Ireland. The proposed introduction of the producer's licence to support our award-winning distillers, brewers and cider producers right across the country in addition to recognising the contribution that events have played in the growth and the visibility uh, of Northern Ireland. And I'd like to, um, I feel at this point that it's really important to highlight that tourism in Northern Ireland reached a significant milestone in 2019, where there were over 5 million overnight trips taken 
and for the first time, associated spend with these trips broke the billion pound barrier. But in order for us to rebuild our tourism industry in the post-COVID environment, it requires us to be continuously reflective and challenging of our tourism, of, of our tourism offer to make sure that we're meeting and managing the expectations of our visitors, uh, both at home and, and those travelling from abroad. And we know that food and drink is an essential part of that tourism offer and is a key element of the holiday experience. Because our research continues to tell us that um, food and drink consumption accounts for almost 350 million per year, uh, which equates to around one third of annual visitor spend, and that this number continues to grow. Northern Ireland has been on a transformative um, food and drink journey over the past five years. We've had the massive success of the 2016 Year of Food and Drink Initiative, which really put us on the, on the world stage and, and did much to enhance our reputation as a world-class food and drink destination. And ultimately, this success led to Northern Ireland being awarded the prestigious accolade of Best Food Destination at the World Travel Awards in 2018. We have a strong history of distilling and brewing and the growth in craft drink production is revitalising our local communities and creating jobs right across Northern Ireland. But for the most part, unless you're covered by an appropriate or an occasional licence, our producers are unable to sell directly to the consumer. So currently, if a tourist visits a distillery, um, they might have had the opportunity to sample the products, but they're unable to purchase directly from the producer. And this is a really frustrating experience for both the visitor and the business owner. And in most cases, visitors will have travelled some distance to take a distillery tour or um, an experience that's centred in and around drink production. They'll have had the opportunity to meet the makers and the people behind the brand, but are prohibited under current legislation to buy a bottle as a gift or as a souvenir of their time in Northern Ireland. And that likelihood of a purchase whilst on the premises is much greater than that of a chance encounter in the nearest off license, or um, if we're lucky enough, an online purchase when they arrive home again. But that online sale then um, brings with it third party markups, um, which you know, are, are, are detrimental for, for, a small, for a small craft drinks producer. So the ability for visitors to purchase on site isn't just highly desirable, but tourists and our visitors expect the opportunity to do this. So we are supportive of an introduction of a producer's license that would permit our craft and drink sector to be able to sell products directly to the consumer as part of their visitor experience, but also at festivals and events across Northern Ireland. And, but at this point, we'd also like to draw attention to the opportunity to support and develop the microbrewery sector. We believe that the proposals within the bill could go a little further to support producers who may wish to innovate to develop new tourism experiences and potential future revenue streams. And we feel that the current proposal um, would prohibit the opportunities for on-premises consumption and that it's potentially restrictive in enabling this growing market who might want to diversify to look at creating a taproom experience, particularly for the tourism market that has an opportunity to motivate visitors to travel, to stay longer and to spend a little bit more in Northern Ireland. And we've conducted extensive research into the needs and the motivations of our close to home markets, where the availability of food and drink experiences and the opportunity to meet these makers continue to dominate the factors in, decision, in the decision making uh, to travel. 
And we feel at Tourism NI that if the proposals were extended to permit direct-to-consumer sales, it would help consolidate our efforts and our objectives to further develop tourism experiences that will support regional spread right across all parts of Northern Ireland that have the ability to extend the tourism season and hopefully the opportunity to build and create a more vibrant and sustainable local economy. And I'd like to thank you, Chair, and the committee um, for the time this morning. Um, we're happy to take any questions that you might have in relation to the written submission and this morning's oral evidence. Thank you. Thank you, Gary, and, and thank you for your submission and for coming to brief us today. Um, I absolutely agree with you. I think we have a, a wonderful offering here in Northern Ireland when it comes to tourism. As you were talking there, I, I was minded of those uh, pre-COVID days down in St George's Market on a Sunday morning um, where you would have heard accents from not only the, all over the UK and Ireland, but all over the world of people that were coming to Northern Ireland. And I, I also remember looking at a, a TripAdvisor post um, around an Easter weekend of people that had come here for Easter weekend. And it was like, what do you do on a Sunday in Northern Ireland? The shops don't open at a certain time and the bars only open at a certain time. Um, so there were, were issues around that, I remember well. Um, just around the, the Easter opening, and I know that um, you would be very much in favour um, of, of uh, the removal of those restrictions. Um, we have heard from the Presbyterian and Methodist churches and Unite the Union about uh, people of faith having to work over the Easter weekend. Have you any comment that you can make on that? Um, albeit that um, I do understand greatly the, the requirement for the, the easement of those restrictions when it comes to our tourism model. Um, yeah, Chair, um, you know, Easter is a significant holiday um, for uh, the, the, the tourism calendar in, in Northern Ireland, and we would be supportive of, you know, relaxation of the hours, and um, particularly around the time when visitors have made the decision to travel to Northern Ireland, um, or, you know, in the case now, very much to stay at home um, and to support the local economy, you know, by, by taking a, a sort of staycation. But, you know, we have to take a very balanced approach uh, and, you know, the, the scrutiny of the bill is, is very important. But tourism and I, uh, you know, we believe that the removal of these restrictions can, I suppose, enhance the attractiveness of Northern Ireland as a modern tourism destination. Um, and you spoke a little there, sort of the pre-COVID days, um, but also moving forward, Chair, um, it's going to be a very competitive marketplace in the months and years ahead. And, you know, from a tourism perspective, we feel that the removal of those restrictions will, I suppose, bolster Northern Ireland's competitive uh, and the growth of the tourism and hospitality sector. Um, but also, there's concern that if we don't look at that particular framework now, is that Northern Ireland could be placed at a competitive disadvantage, you know, particularly when we're looking to um, ROI or other close to home destinations of choice. They have made those legislative changes um, to permit um, you know, uh, extended hours over, over Easter trading. So for us, it's really about managing those visitor expectations and going back to some of that research chair where our visitors are telling us that, you know, particularly on Sundays, and you know, um, I picked up on the Visitor Attitude Survey that we're not actually meeting um, expectations of visitors who are travelling to Northern Ireland during the Easter period. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, just then, want to ask you about the issue around major offence. I know that you would be supportive um, of, of giving those powers uh, to the department around major events. Have you any concerns about how those events might be defined? Uh, Chair, yes, um, not, not so much concerns, um, but I think, you know, 
our events play a significant role in the promotion and the development of Northern Ireland. And, you know, previous events might have been impacted by the lack of ability to, to vary sort of um, hours for the sale of consumption of alcohol, you know, where, where it fell outside of the remit. But I suppose Tourism and I's message is that, you know, we would like to see a framework um, around uh, special events or major events um, that again can help uh, Northern Ireland come out on the front foot sort of post-pandemic and the commitment from Tourism and I chair is that we would continue to be very supportive of those ongoing conversations in terms of what does that framework look like and uh, what does it look like actually when it's applied on the ground. So I suppose there's a commitment from our perspective to very much work with the department and um, to try and roll that out and make sure that it does um, support um, Northern Ireland's transformative journey, you know, the, the phenomenal success of the Open in 2019 and um, the Giro, the MTV, uh, Europe Music Awards, all those great events that we've delivered on. And I think we've got a real opportunity now to take some of those learnings, but actually to be, apply them to Northern Ireland and uh, to see how we can move forward and stronger as a destination that, that can continue to attract that inward investment. I think you're absolutely right. It's just when you mention some of those events, they seem like a lifetime ago now. Um, yeah. Some of those major events that we we held here and were held here so successfully. Um, so yeah. I think that I think I suppose as a as a country looking forward as well, we need to need to look at how we 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 what we do and to boost people's confidence and to to get people out there again attending events. So I think it's it's vitally important that we get this right in in this legislation. Um, I'm going to open up. Uh, Gary Knight is some of the members. I've got Mark, then I have Sinead, and then I have Alex. So if I can ask Mark to come in. Thank you, Gary. And uh, Rosemary, thank you, Chair. Uh, Gary, you just listed some of the great events that you've been involved in the delivery of, and I'm sure yourselves as an organisation and even as individuals are extremely frustrated that you haven't been able to do any of that. Vitally important, and, and that's, dare say, ultimately enjoyable <laughs> pieces mm -hmm. of work over the past year and we look forward to you getting back to, to doing what you do do extremely well. Now th this bill has taken on a new dimension and urgency given the financial issues the pandemic's caused and the threat that it's posed to the industry both in terms of patrons here and <laughs> of interest to you of course tourists. Now hospitality also did research in 2016 that suggested this was on the Easter liquor licensing restrictions, that they were costing £16 million to our economy, and they suggested it could now be up to £20 million following the, the, the changes in the South in 2018. I don't know if Tourism and I done any research on the economic impact of the current, that the current licensing framework has on tourism, or, or is it something that you might consider doing? I think Mark, it's a it's a it's a really good point, and and hospitality Ulster very much taking the lead in that space in terms of direct impacts to the the, the hospitality businesses. From a tourism perspective, Mark, um, there are a number um, of proposals that are outlined in the bill that we haven't, I suppose, been able to consolidate what that opportunity might look like, um, because we haven't had the opportunity maybe to move into that space before. So when we're picking up elements of the of, of the bill very much in support of producers being able to sell direct and it's because they haven't had the opportunity to do that that we can't really i suppose quantify uh, you know what that leakage or what that loss potentially looks like but um you know we're 
and, and all of the great stuff, Mark, that you've picked up on in terms of even the events and the, and the delivery, it's important that, you know, Tourism and I have delivered that in addition to working with, you know, a number of stakeholders uh, that you've mentioned. So it's very much about sharing that information and, and about bringing that totality um, to, the, to the department in terms of identifying what the loss has been in and around that significant Easter period, but also about what the opportunities are to say, well, if we can come out now on the front foot post-pandemic and really support our industry to tap into new experience development and new revenue streams potentially off the back of that, um, it would be really great you know, for us to um, capture what the gaps um, in the bill proposal uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of how this might work and how it translates. So hopefully then, Mark, yes, we as an organisation would be very keen to showcase what the, what the positive changes to the bill have, uh, have directly resulted in tourism and increased revenue. Yeah, just to just to add to, to, to what Gary has said there, while our research doesn't look at you know the quantification of the economic uh, economic losses, I mean what our what our research mainly focuses on is I suppose the, the 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 visitor expectation, and I suppose the what we do know is is that you know food and drink is is, is such a significant driver in in, in visitors. Um, uh, choice of destination, one of the top one of the top five factors. I think the other bit that we know from our research as well is is that we in Northern Ireland, while tourism has grown um, significantly, we have a huge opportunity to extract more value from every visitor who who, who comes to, to 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 Northern Ireland. And as Gary just mentioned here, it's about. I suppose developing those high quality experiences that can really, I suppose, you know, deliver value into the economy through enhanced enhanced spend by every visitor. And some of these um, uh, proposals and the modernisation and flexibility have the real opportunity uh, to do that. So to really drive up the value we get from from from, from every interaction or visitor engagement. No, it is all about driving value, and then I'll have to relook. I think at these hospitality Ulster figures just to see. Obviously, their business is hospitality, but are their figures based solely on like accommodation, food and drink? Because I know that's a prime factor in people deciding to come here or stay here, but people spend money on a lot more than food and drink when they are here. And if they stay an extra night, they'll be out about the town the next day and buy this, that and the other and help all sorts of, of other local businesses. Uh, Gary outlined there uh, Tourism I support for a local producer's licence and the logic behind that, which I agree with <laughs> entirely. I don't know if you, you guys have been, been following uh, our evidence gathering over the past number of weeks and months now even, but the department has, albeit in a cursory manner, suggested to us that tap rooms uh, might adversely affect existing licensed premises as if it's some sort of zero-sum game rather than helping to create a more vibrant and attractive environment that benefits the whole industry and, and the whole area. I was wondering, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, just picking up on that, Mark, you know, from, from our perspective, um, this is about the ability, I suppose, to develop um, the sector to create those new and compelling experiences and to try and motivate people to travel. Uh, you know, as I said, across all all, all parts of Northern Ireland, um, I think there is an opportunity, uh, Mark, uh, for us really 
um, to, to, to look at that and to see if there is, I suppose, a, a sensible approach or um, an opportunity for the industry really to get talking in and around the opportunities of, of taproom creation. I think it's important at this point to say or to suggest that um, not everyone that um, has the ability to create a taproom experience will, will want to do it. Um, you know, they will, those, those businesses, I suppose, will need to have done research in and around um, viability. Um, you know, how much potentially would it, would it cost businesses to move into that space? What does that re regulatory framework look like? Um, but I think it's about um, exploring opportunities um, to maybe level the playing field a little bit um, from a tourism and a, an experiential uh, perspective, whereby the craft uh, breweries and the craft drink sector are really going after that niche market. You know, these are visitors that are highly motivated to travel to find out a little bit more about the, the product, where it's produced, how it's produced, and opportunities really to uncover those stories in and around sort of flavor profiles, what kind of ingredients are being used, and um, what's unique to Northern Ireland, what's unique about the, the processes um, or the or the methods that, that are that are used. And all of that, Mark, when we look at it, you know, there's real opportunities, I suppose, to pass all of that knowledge on to, to visitors. And what is the opportunity now for us for those that maybe do want to, to move into that space? You know, um, it, 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 it needs to be a viable business proposition for them. A, um, whether they want to, to to move down, you know, to move to move into that space. But we would very much, from a tourism perspective, be keen to see if the conversations with the with, with industry could be ignited in and around. Well, what does that framework look like? What are the responsibilities potentially on on craft brewers that want to develop a taproom experience for the tourism and, and for the very niche markets um, and really understand that you know holding a license for any alcohol consumption comes with some level of responsibility but i think there are i think there are opportunities for conversations there our research tells us mm. and we know that experiential tourism and um, mark is going to be so important um, for our recovery sort of post-COVID. It's about looking at what other destinations offer, but it's about almost saying, well, what are the opportunities here for Northern Ireland? How can we almost rebound stronger? How can we look at all that research um, and the opportunities in and around driving up that value, driving up that visitor spend, which Rosemary Rose has alluded to? And I think there's great opportunity to explore that a little bit more. You sort of think that the more, the more strings to our bow, the better in terms of think, a visitor experience and then bringing people here for that. I think, I, I, I think Mark, it's about um, offering variety and offering choice. And I know that we've touched on this in, in, in other sessions, um, but it's about that um, support for locals. Um, our home market is probably our biggest opportunity in terms of you know storytelling, driving experiences, and tapping into additional revenue streams. But it's, you know, when we look at it, it is quite a barrier for, for, for some of the small producers. So how can we make sure that that money is going back into the local economy? What are the potential benefits um, to looking at tap rooms and, and the whole tourism element in, in terms of, you know, job creation and local investment and localism, and circle, that circular economy we've heard a lot of over the past number of, of weeks and months. And I think that the, the COVID pandemic has totally changed how we view the quality of our food and drink so that when the supply chains were inter uh, interrupted in those sort of early months and our producers you know worked so hard i suppose to make 
to get us access to great quality food. Um, I think there's a real drive and a movement now towards really supporting our industries as we move out of this. But how can we use tourism and experiences as the hook? Uh, what is the additionality? Where are the opportunities to encourage people to travel, to hear about those stories and have the opportunity to, to transact as, uh, and to increase dwell time on the back of that? And if people are travelling here for that experience, uh, it's unlikely that they'll confine their trip solely to tap rooms. They'll be benefit for the wider economy and, and, and other pubs and hospitality venues out there as well. Yeah, I think we've heard that balance, Mark, you know, and as I say, just because the permissions might be there for the for the craft sector to, to, to look at that diversification into, into tap rooms, not everyone wants to do it. Not everyone wants to move into that space. Um, um, this isn't there for them at the moment, and that's it's not even in this uh, draft bill. So, I, th- I think it's about I think it's about the choice, not only for businesses, uh, Mark, but also for visitors. Um, I work very closely with the sector, Mark. Um, I'm the food and drink experience development officer, so it's my job to get out with industry and to talk about the opportunities in and around tourism, and particularly for the craft drink sector. They don't really see um, that fit between product and, and, and tourism as, as yet. And a lot of those that are offering tours, they're doing it from a brand awareness perspective. You know, because they can't sell direct to the, con- the, the consumer and that captive audience is, I suppose, left the building without any additional cash in the till, they're not making, you know, huge margins from putting on, you know, the tours and a sort of 90 minute or, you know, two hour um, visit in and around the distillery. So. I feel um, taking a really balanced and uh, uh, approach to the build proposals that there's great scope uh, to tap in to, to those producers and to really look at start to drive that experiential element forward. Okay, thank you, Guy. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Mark. Um, we've got Sinead, then Alex, then Kelly. So can we bring in Sinead? Thank you, Chair, um, and thanks, guys. As in Mark's covered. Um, majority of what I wanted to, to talk to you about in terms of the, the taproom issue and um, I, I fully concur with what Gary has said there in terms of this bill um, and the tourism uh, sector more broadly being a, a massive tool for us in terms of uh, emerging from, from COVID and building back our economy and um, it's going to be a massive, um, this is going to be a, a, a massive part of it and I think that's why it's incumbent on us as a, as a committee to really um, to get a move on, uh, basically in terms of, of, of uh, scrutinising this and, and hopefully bringing it forward through the assembly. Um, as I said, Mark's covered a lot of it, but um, you know, I, I think certainly in South Down, um, we, we have lots of tap rooms, lots of craft brewers, and we're sort of, uh, I think we're re- really well placed in terms of work, you know, right on the shores of Corningford Lock, our location, and the emergence of all the the, the craft brewers uh, who have told me that they've had tour buses pulling up. At, pulling up outside the brewery and expecting to get a tour, expecting to get a sample um, and they're they're having to be turned away. So that's something we just can't afford to happen in the time ahead and not if we want to compete with other other tourist destinations. So um, I know you were saying to Mark there that you can't um, estimate the economic impact of not um, having uh, you know the, the, these tap room um, experiences or these uh, been able to buy uh, to buy directly from the producers but 
you know, is there is that something that you're getting in terms of feedback from visitors that they're disappointed that they, they can't have that experience here? Is it something, you know, is that an expectation when visitors come here? Because I know certainly locally, as I said, I, we, we've experienced it here, but more broad, is that the feedback from tourists that they're saying, you know, we're disappointed we can't have this experience? And if that was, you know, if there was an amendment in the bill to introduce that, is it something that Tourism NI would be, because obviously you're going to have to have a marketing strategy around it, you're going to have to, you know, be able to promote it. So is that something that you guys are thinking about? Yeah, in terms of, of, of feedback, Sinead, um, from visitors, um, it's from visitors and, and business owners alike that, that that feedback comes from. And, you know, when we talk about sort of the year of food and drink and best food destination and, you know, the Tasty Island initiatives that, that, that Tourism and I um, have been propelling forward with, um, we have done a lot to, I suppose, push um, media uh, journalist visits out throughout um, Northern Ireland. And again, when we're bringing media um, and journalists, and, and, and we want them to write about the great quality of our of our, of our food and drink, which Sinead, you have alluded to that, that you have in, in your constituency in abundance. And, and I know that from, from my work with the sector. Um, but there is disappointment there that we can't actually showcase that if we were taking media and uh, we work very closely with, with uh, you know with food ni with um bringing in even international buyers in, in and around some of these events and there are barriers there even from a showcase perspective to say that look um we can't sell you anything there are no opportunities for you to taste you know when they're leaving northern ireland you know they can allude to i suppose the, these great producers and these great makers but we're not actually bridging that gap but i think you know and um, using tourism, using experiences, Sinead. And going back to your point in terms of, you know, will we focus in terms of strategy? Will we put some development opportunities in and around um, the craft drink sector? We certainly will. Um, and there's a commitment there from, from tourism and I suppose to really work uh, with the sector to bring those experiences to the fore. But it's difficult at the, at the moment when they can't sell direct to consumer, they're not sure what the tourism benefits are to their business. And in some cases, there's been quite low levels of engagement. So, if uh, you know uh, certain uh, proposals were introduced, we would be keen as an organisation to go and pick that up and, and to run forward with the potential. Yeah, Sinead, it's a very it's a very interesting point that that, that, that you raise in terms of you know um, tour buses and, and and visitors coming because I suppose what we what we do know why we mightn't as, as as I say have quantified the the the, the potential economic losses of this. While Northern Ireland has come a, a long way, we still have a huge amount of work to do in terms of those experiences that really stimulate demand for Northern Ireland and also enhance the experience when visitors when visitors are here, which we get you know continuous feedback from from our visitor attitude surveys. I think overall, I would say we have come a long way, but we need to have a huge raft of these really authentic quality experiences. There is a lot, a lot done, but a lot, a lot still needed to, to, to do. And I suppose it comes to the point of, you know, stimulating private sector investment in the development of, of, of tourism um, experiences, whether that is you know, food, food and drink or otherwise. And I think, you know, Gary alluded to, um, I suppose, the, the, the work that he is doing across the sector. And I think there's probably, you know, two elements that probably um, give you some indication of that. 
Um, Gary probably works very closely with about 15 distillers or a group of around 15 distillers across across Northern Ireland. As he mentioned, our engagement with the um, uh, microbrewers, of which there are many now pop, pop, popping up probably in and around 20, but Gary can can, can, can correct me um, um, on, on, on that one. But our engagement is very low in, 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 in relation to those, and that's probably very much around the opportunity or the lack of, 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 of opportunity for uh, revenue streams and for viability and sustainability in terms of really moving into into that that that, that tourism space. So I think there is a real opportunity um, in here around development of experiences, but experiences in that domain. I think the key point is, is around how can that be done in a fair, proportionate and fit for purpose um, manner that can deliver on those objectives, but to do it proportionally and in, in, in a fit for purpose way. Sinead's gone, so she has. I, I wasn't sure whether it was me that was gone or Sinead that has gone there. Sinead has dropped off, I think, so she has. Let me just look at the screen here, she has. Um, look, thank you, I'll move on then to our, our next question is from Alex. And if Sinead comes back in, I'll bring her in again. Alex? Can you hear me? Yeah. Hear you now, yeah. yes, Alex, go ahead. Yeah, um, Gary, um, thank you both for your uh, presentation. And Gary, um, thank you for the positive language that you're using, and, and, and I particularly like the way you meant, mentioned about enhancing the attractiveness of Northern Ireland. So I think that's a very po uh, positive thing to be doing and trying to do for the future too. So that was quite refreshing, so thank you. Um, I have a quick question. Um, your support for the bill um, and, and as the bill stands at the moment, um, it will obviously have a, a benefit for the economy and jobs and tourism and stuff like that. Is there any rough estimates how much this could help the economy, um, potential new jobs and how many new tourists this could potentially attract if it's got right? If you anything you could give us in that in terms of <laughs> I think, it's a, I think it's a very good question, um, Alex. It's not it's not one obviously that we have all the answers to at the moment because a lot of what's proposed within the bill is in and around the opportunity, you know. And we have been on um, this sort of transformative journey, uh, particularly from 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 the food and drink perspective since since twenty sixteen, and we've done uh, monumental things within the parameters of the legislation that that we could work with. And I suppose you know it is about just saying well. What can we do further? How can we sort of bolster all of that great work that has been done? Uh, and it goes back to you know really uncovering and unlocking those new tourism experiences and driving those forward, Alex. And, and hopefully then that starts to translate into cash in the tills, you know, and X in terms of job creation and overnight stays and spending more, spending additional. So you know, if the if the bill proposals. Um, as they stand or as they're developed or, or introduced, that tourism and I would be able to look at our visitor attitude survey, look at all of our consumer um, sentiment and research and bring that to the department at, at a much later stage to say that, you know, I suppose pre 
COVID or, or pre bill being introduced that food tourism and, and job creation linked to that was X. But actually, now that we have seen some of these positive measures maybe embedded um, within local communities, that you know that, that that we could bring that information to you. So it is a little bit, Alex. Uh, you know, we don't have it, but it's about what the opportunity is in and around that. And we would be very supportive of putting some measures. Uh, uh, and, and, and some companies in and around that to report back to the department about the direct impacts that the bill has had on tourism, job creation, and creating a more sustainable and um, tourism economy. Yeah, there, 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 there are a number of, 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 of different ways to look at it as well, and I suppose important, important context. Gary had mentioned the headline figures of, of 1 billion and, and, and 350 million per annum on, 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 on food and drink, uh, so, so, so almost a third of the, of, of, of the overall um, revenue. I think one of the key things around the development in particular of food and drink um, experiences and what we call those kind of demand generators is, is that they do have a very, very strong ripple effect into the into the wider economy as well so they are demand you know they are demand generators i suppose so so so, so they benefit they benefit the wider sector there's also a huge amount of, of of collaboration particularly over the last number of years between i suppose you know food and food and drink um, uh, producers food and drink experience providers and and, and 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 others so we have you know combinations of experiences where activity providers are coming together with you know, food and drink providers, etc. So there's there's a whole lot of different ways that you can look at it. But I suppose essentially, in some ways, the story of that you know one third of overall revenue uh, is, is 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 generated from food and drink, and the fact that food and drink are in the top five factors. It's, it's, it's absolutely fundamental to the tourism economy, but we could probably provide further context if that was useful in terms of bringing some of those types of examples to life. Yes, thank you. Okay, thank you, Alex. Oh, it just sounds like a dog barking. Um, can I ask that Sinead be brought back into the spotlight again? Sinead, I know I realise you dropped out there, so I don't know if you had anything further you wanted to add. Uh, no, thanks, Sharon. No, I, I, I caught most of um, Gary's response there. I just, just before we talk about bringing tourists into Southdown, I think we need to sort out our, our broadband. Um, but, uh, no, no, listen, no, that's that's fine. I, I, I'm done, Sharon. Thanks a million. Okay. And thanks to Rosemary and, and Gary as well. Okay. Thanks, Sinead. Okay, can we bring then in Kelly in the spotlight? Yeah, there we go. There's Kelly with us. Thank you, Chair. Um, actually, guys, thank you very much for your presentation, Gary and Rosemary. Um, there's an, an item that I'd like to go back to that's within the legislation in regards to major events. Um, now, it, it, in this amendment and within the original legislation, it talks about where the department considers that an event which is to take place in Northern Ireland will attract significant public interest, um, and then it, it lists all of the things that can happen. Now, the department in question is communities as opposed to economy. And I'm just wondering, is there any rub there that you have experienced to date? Um, I know obviously we don't have these licenses, so I'm just wondering how that works for yourselves. Now, we think about the open. Um, there were so many vested interests in that. Is it easy enough or is this another layer of bureaucracy? Um, I'm just wondering how that, that fits with the different departments being involved with major events. Do you envisage that as being a problem that could delay license issue? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that events take a long time to plan, so there shouldn't be, but have you any thoughts on that? Um, 
Yeah, go, go on, Gary. Sorry. Go ahead, Rosemary. No, I think what, what what I was what I was just going to say is is I suppose you know it would be very important um, that there is clarity in terms of of, of, of the framework and um, simplicity I suppose in relation to the process because fundamentally in terms of the major events you know we all know the outcome that we're trying to achieve is is that I suppose the um, Northern Ireland isn't seen as a sort of a, a less competitive or less easy place to do business for events organizers and the whole as you as you mentioned kelly the whole host of of partners that have to come forward so i think you know but without getting into the detail of it i think clarity is very very important that um i suppose those international investors or event organizers or whoever it, it may be would not see northern ireland as, as as a more difficult place to 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 do business or to do the transaction so i think clarity and simplicity in the process should be the the the, the overall outcome but you know I think we can we can have faith that we, we, we can do that together when we're working together but I think if we if we focus on the outcomes of, of, of absolute clarity and and, and and a really sort of I suppose as you kind of pointed out a, a, a fairly streamlined process I think that if those two bits are together I think all of the the key partners can work together to um, to deliver on that. And can I just ask, in regards to the open, I know that there was changes made to the legislation by the then Secretary of State. Um, I'm just thinking, who who will be the licensing issuer for a major event? Who is the licensing issuer at the moment? And is it communities or economy or is it the place or who is it just currently? My my my, under, my understanding is is that it's communities. Okay. Um, I will need to. Yeah. I, I may need to just double check that. Yeah. No, it's just, that, no, that's fine. It's just I wanted to clear it in my head. The other one I wanted to ask you about is um, the major event order conditions, which is included. Um, and this comes from experience, and you guys have all the experience in the world with this. Um, we know that, for instance, if there's a major event that takes place um, in, say, the um, the Odyssey, or uh, you know. In fact, if there's two major sporting events, say there's a football match happening at Windsor Park and there's something out at um, Titanic Quarter, the flow of traffic coming through different areas is incredible. And if there's any breakdowns in the West Link, heaven help Belfast. But I'm just thinking there's part of the event order conditions where it talks about in 48B5, um, a major event which authorizes the sale of intoxicating liquor for consumption in place or premises also, also authorizes during the first 60 minutes after the conclusion of the hour specified in the order, the consumption of intoxicating liquor. And then it goes on to say that can be reduced down to 30 minutes. Um, I know that other comments that we have had about extending ours means that it could help um, move people out rather than a, a lump sum of people coming out at one o'clock in the morning, that it could actually help to you know, break down how many people come out at the same time. I'm just thinking as far as management of major events is concerned, would that have any impact given that we know Belfast can become completely snarled up um, after events can happen and what happened with the Open? Um, you know, how as long as there's a joined up public transport offer, um, that could certainly help. But we're talking about hours here that may well be very early hours of the morning when public transport may not necessarily be readily available. How do you think that's going to work for major events and if there's anything missing in the legislation in relation to that? 
Sorry, apologies. I don't know whether um, I, I went offline there for a good part of it. I, the, 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 a, a huge amount of what Kelly had to say. I don't know if uh, it went off for anybody else. But Gary, I don't know if you um, picked up on some of the, yeah. the content there. I, th I think um, it's that's really good to, I suppose, to detail, Kelly, and, and that's right that we're going through um, all of that scrutiny at the moment. Um, uh, when we are looking at the bill, and you know that is um, going to probably come down to that uh, the, that event sort of management plan, and in terms of what that looks like and how that translates, I suppose, to the logistics on the ground. And, and as you've rightly alluded to, um, Kelly and Rosemary and I have brought it up on, on a number of occasions today. It's all in and around that visitor experience. So we might be, I suppose, locals then that are going down to the Odyssey or to Custom Place Square. You know, we're, we're taking in um, the, the, the concert or the music venue, but we don't then obviously want to see that translated into a really poor, poor uh, experience right at the end of the night because, you know, the local infrastructure um, doesn't support all of that footfall or that the dots haven't been, been joined up. Um, and I suppose, broadly, Kelly, from, from our perspective today is that, you know, regardless of, um, you know, who I suppose holds the powers then to designate sort of special or major events is that, um, you know, Tourism NI at this particular um, point of, of the bill consultation is to say that you know, we're very supportive of seeing um, improvements made to, to sort of that, that framework and, and how it lands. And, you know, we're willing, um, we're willing for those uh, further elements within the bill, if they are to be scrutinised further, if we do want a little bit more clarity in terms of, well, who actually, you know, I suppose dots the I's and crosses the T's with this one, is the tourism and I would be very, very keen, I suppose, to, to, to be party to those discussions, in addition to our local authorities, the PSNI or traffic management or other stakeholders. So I appreciate that that's really in the detail, but I get it, Kelly, there's nothing worse than, than, than going as a spectator, enjoying the concert, and we actually can't get home, you know, because the, the infrastructure is there. And that in itself, I suppose, that it's like checking out a hotel early and having a poor breakfast. You know, it's, that's what you remember. We might not do it again because we couldn't get home where there were different challenges. And so I, I, I totally get that. And, and we would help support that in, in any way that we could as an organisation. You're absolutely right, Gary. It's not part of this, but it's an unintended consequence that, that may come forward. Um, but the, the drinking up time or the finishing up, you know, your, your drinks um, at that end of night after concert or after a match has finished or whatever way that to work. I'm just not wholly convinced that it's not just moving um, people, leaving premises from 1.30 to 2.30. You know, it's just mm -hmm. a up number. I don't know how gradual people will leave premises at that point um but but hopefully it's it's just something that i have in the back of my mind having known belfast to get snarled up and knowing having been part of the transport um discussions with the open um you know what if you added on another hour would it make it easier i don't know as far as infrastructure is concerned but i was just interested to hear what you're going to say it can of course then be amended to bring it down from 60 minutes to 30 minutes and then we're you know, we, we can see how that works. But I think that this this move forward for major events is, is can be nothing but good for Northern Ireland. You know, it just gives us another option to have. Um, and I welcome your comments on the, the microbreweries and the local breweries. It helps to set in, in place some of the comments that we have received already from witnesses, that it's not to negate what we already have, but just to add more that we can offer. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Both that was really helpful today. Thank you.
Thanks, Kelly. Okay, thanks, Kelly. Thank and I suppose um, our next witness session up is the Institute of Licensing, and I know that um, Stephen and Owen are listening in here, so they might be able to answer some of those questions about responsibility um, when it comes to major events and um, permitted hours. Um, so, look, thank you very much to Gary and Rosemary for your time here today and for your submission into the bill. It's been a very worthwhile um, witness session. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Chair. Can I just point out two 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 quick points before we leave on the uh, on the uh, producer's license? It's it's there within the written submission, but it was just um, really to 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 tap on um, to the proposals for the producer license in terms of encompassing all facilities associated with with um, drink production. So um, under the the bill proposals, I suppose it's just to have an awareness of those sites of production. Um, where the visitor servicing elements might take place, where retail might take place, and it's just to make sure that there's no ambiguity, I suppose, in how that's presented. Um, we will have heard from others, particularly in um, ROI, where the producer's licence has been made available, but has had really low uptake, and they, that may be a cost consideration, but also it might actually be, well, how do I interpret this legislation and how does it apply to me as a business owner? So I thought I would ju just touch on that again. Uh, we leave. And you will have heard um, from others in terms of the concerns uh, or potential challenges in and around that collaborative product space, whereby if we had two breweries that maybe wanted to come together to create the product, or we might have a brewery with um, a local cidery that really want to bring certain special um, aspects or ingredients together to create a product, and how that would translate then um, into the producer's license. So, uh, I think it's all really positive in terms of, of, of what's outlined there, um, but just to make sure, I suppose, that um, for small producers, when they are reading the legislation, that they're not completely overwhelmed and they know that how it translates to them um, on the on their production premises and for collaboration. No, look, thank you for that, um, Gary. That was one of the questions that the, the clerk had asked me to ask you and I didn't ask you. So I'm very glad that you really came in and cleared that up a little bit for us. Um, I know whenever we, we've had various witness sessions where we have heard it said that um, in the Republic of Ireland, as you say, there's been very low uptake of this. Um, and we actually don't know what that's reflective of. You know, is it because of the bureaucracy or, or is it because of course we don't actually know that? So that would be worthwhile actually us fighting that out as well. So thanks for clearing that up too. Um, look, thank you. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Chair and Committee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye bye. Bye. Okay, members, we're going to then move swiftly on to agenda item eight, which is the Institute of Licensing NI, who are again going to brief us on the licensing and registration of clubs amendment bill. Can I inform members you'll find our agenda item at page two zero five of your meeting pack? And then can I then welcome to the meeting Stephen McGowan and Owen Devlin? There we go. You are both with us. You're both very welcome. Um, can I then ask, I think it's yourself, Stephen, um, to begin the briefing, and you have up to 10 minutes. Thank you. Well, we can't hear you, Stephen. You just check that you're not on mute. Still can't hear, Stephen. This happens occasionally. It's rather annoying. Um, do you want to tr try again, Stephen? No, it's not working. Look, what I am going to ask you to do, Stephen, because we've had this problem has happened many, many times in committee, and I ask you to go out and then come back in and rejoin the meeting, and I'll bring you in as soon as I see your name pop up here on my screen. Is that okay? All right, good stuff. 
Thanks, Stephen. Um, then I'm going to go. We're going to put you in the, the hot seat on here, so I am now. Um, so if thank you, Chair. Much, yeah, much appreciated. Um, maybe that single from Scotland isn't uh, working as well as it should be. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Chair, and thank you for the committee um, for inviting us to attend today, uh, representing the Institute of Licensing, um, as well as being a member of the Institute of Licensing here um, in Belfast. I'm also a solicitor, so I deal with the practical side of licensing applications in the courts here. Um, in the north, and um, I work closely with Stephen, who will be able to give an insight into the Scottish perspective and how some of the reforms we're considering here um, have been implemented and how they've worked um, in Scotland as well. Um, the, the, I'm just going to touch on some of Stephen, I think it's going to give you a bit of background to the Institute of Licensing and how, how it operates across the various jurisdictions. Uh, from my perspective, you obviously have read the written submission from the Institute of Licensing um, and I don't want to I don't want to go through each point in turn because obviously I appreciate you'll spend time going through it and you'll have, you'll have read through. Just wanted to flag a couple of points um, from the Institute of Licensing perspective. Um, the East the Institute of Licensing um, obviously is welcomes uh, amendments to modernising our legislation here um, and views these reforms as very valuable. Um, and an opportunity to really develop the hospitality um, and the nighttime economy um, here and um, also while uh, protecting the community safety and public health. Um, some of the various points in our submission um, cover off um, some aspects of the, the bill. Um, the Easter um, and additional hours is one such aspect. Um, the Institute of Lyson is very supportive of that change. It's a change that um, is in force in England and Scotland and um, those jurisdictions and the Institute doesn't see difficulties in those jurisdictions with um, removing those Easter restrictions and also the additional hours here will give flexibility hopefully to licensed premises here to, to grow that nighttime economy. Um, the, the Institute Licensing in terms of those additional hours would recommend the department uh, develops guidance um, on the new legislation and works closely with all those stakeholders, including the PSNI um, and the local councils. Um, again, one point we've flagged in our submission is around the alignment of the liquor uh, and entertainment licences. Um, we've sort of flagged on that that we believe this change um, may just limit some of the flexibility which is in the current system. Um, so a licensee who wishes to provide entertainment beyond the hours of their um, alcohol licence won't be able to do that now um, under the proposed bill um, and that will fetter the discretion of um, our local councils who as you know at present issued entertainment licences where as the courts uh, deal with the liquor licences. Um, this does go to a wider point which we flagged in our submission that the issue licences while supporting these changes will also support wider changes if there was an appetite going forward um, to look at maybe move into that uh, council-based licensing system, whereas now, as a practitioner, I know we're dealing with a, a lot more court-based system um, at present. Um, support, in terms of some of the other parts of the bill which we flagged in our submission, uh, in our submission, uh, we are absolutely issued licensing supports the provisions on, on special events, um, and I know Tourism and I have touched on that, so I won't go into it and really support that. And then in terms of the local producers' license, again, Institute of Licensing um, supports this, um, and I know you've heard from a number of stakeholders in that field, 
in, in your various evidence sessions on, the, on that local producer's license. Um, children and young people, again, the producer's license is, is supportive of, of those clauses. Um, I think it's clause 12. And what we would say in those clauses is, from an institute license perspective is that we would um, seek for the private functions and other functions to be clearly defined in the legislation. So there's no ambiguity when it comes to enforcing this via the police and um, via the police and the local councils. Uh, one, one point we flagged our submission in terms of clause 15 around vending machines was touched on earlier by the Wine um, and Spirit Trade Association in terms of how, how that could limit innovation in that sector. Um, we've highlighted some examples, um, one, some examples of how these uh, how machines work in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and we've also highlighted a, an example of a Nottingham-based um, uh, scheme whereby technology is used. And one point we would flag with that clause is that while I can see the I can see where it's coming from in terms of a straightforward vending machine which anyone can use, what we don't want to do is limit innovation um, and limit the limit sort of creative change as technology changes and as things change going forward. We just want to make sure that um, we don't tie ourselves to something in the bill which limits that um, going forward. Um, Stephen is going to speak about um, Scotland and how. Clause 16, which is sort of replicated in Scotland, and um, how that operates in practice, and the Institute of Licensing is supportive of those advertising um, changes. I know it was touched on earlier in terms of the Wine and Trade Association, in terms of um, the loyalty point scheme, and we would have we would just ask why that's necessary if it does restrict um, consumer choice in terms of um, loyalty point schemes in supermarkets. Um, that's all I had, Chair, just to cover off at the minute. I think Stephen is going to touch on a few more things there, um, if that's helpful. Yep, Owen, well, look, thank you. We're having now an issue here with our system has failed. Um, <laughs> we've got an unstable connection here in the Assembly as well. Um, so welcome to the world of the internet. Um, so I'm, just going, I'm going to, I, I, I don't even know if Stephen has rejoined the meeting, so I'm going to ask um, if Stephen, can, if he has rejoined, can he be brought into the spotlight? I won't even know if he's if we are able to hear him or not unless he speaks. So if Stephen's there, can we bring him in? It is like a seance now. <laughs> is anybody because <laughs> we can't see anything at the minute? Okay, I'm not hearing Stephen's voice coming through, so I'm not, which is a shame because I know that uh, we were really I was very interested to hear about his experiences, um, especially in Scotland. No, I don't think we've got sound from Stephen, and I don't know if he's rejoined the meeting, even at this particular stage. Because I, can't, I can't get back in at the minute. No, I have no access to the screen. Um, yeah. Owen, so we're going to have to just have yeah, a yeah, chat. I mean, if we can't get Stephen back in, we'll maybe try and fit him in at, a, at another date, if we can't get him back in now. Um, just wanted to, if I can just ask you a couple of questions um, around, uh, I know you said you support Clause 16 as well. I read that in your submission about the advertising and promotions. Um, we, have, we have heard conflicting evidence around that from um, various witness sessions um, that, that it could be um, restrictive for small businesses. Um, any comment or opinion on that? Yeah, yeah Chair, I've read through some of the previous evidence and you can see how that um, could have an impact on some of those businesses. But um, I think if, it's, if, the, if the advertising is kept to the licensed area, 
that will hopefully, uh, I think Stephen is going to touch on some of these points as well in terms of how it works in Scotland and how it's worked quite well. But it's just that, about that balance in terms of ensuring um, the advertising, you know, protecting young people in advertising and also allowing companies to advertise their products. Hi, thanks, Owen. I'm just looking. I've got my screens back up in front of me again, thankfully. And Stephen has not rejoined the meeting for some reason or other, whether he can't get back in. But I mean, if we don't get him in, as I say, before the end of your session here, we'll ask him to come yep. back. Mm -hmm. So, well, well, there's not a problem with no. that at all. He's back. You know, back. is he back? He's not on my screen. Is he? T have you? Have you got? Can you text him or anything, Owen, and see if he's there? Or? He's on my screen, sure, if that makes... He's on your screen. He's just not on our screen. There we go. This is, technology is, is just wonderful. Um, Stephen, we can't see you. I'm sorry. I don't even know if you can hear me. Um, you can... I can... Oh. Uh, mad woman, can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you now. There you go. <laughs> there you are. You've come up on our main screen, but not on the screen beside me. Please go ahead, Stephen. Go ahead. Well, first of all, I should say that I'm delighted to be able to speak to you. <laughs> um, so it, it is a, uh, an honour to be asked to come and speak to uh, the, the committee today. Uh, and yes, the uh, the old Wi-Fi between Belfast and Glasgow that I've at the start of the meeting there, but hopefully all is well now. Um, Madam Chairperson and members, uh, my name's Stephen McGowan. I'm a specialist licensing solicitor. Uh, from TLT. I spend my days representing the licensed trade, but today I'm here in my capacity as a trustee of the uh, charity, the Institute of Wiping. Um, I'm not sure what Owen may have said because of dropping off, so apologies for the slight uh, amount of repetition. Um, but I'm a director of the Scottish region of the Institute, and I'm here today to stand in for the chairman of the Northern Ireland region, James. James is the licensing manager for Belfast City Council. He couldn't be here today, so I'm standing in place. The IOL members at the registered charity, whose role is to promote best practice within the licensing profession. And what I mean by that is to represent and support licensing The IOL is a broad church. We represent uh, local authorities, councils, police authorities and specialists licensing solicitors like self known uh, all over the UK. Uh, it was many years ago. We have a regional presence across the UK, Northern Ireland, which again has been an established region for many years. Uh, we're delighted to give evidence to the committee today and engage with you on the uh, licensing reform proposals. Um, I think whilst I had dropped off, you've hopefully heard from uh, Owen about uh, what the Institute has had to say in terms of our written response. Um, and perhaps my role today, uh, members, is to provide you with some comparison in relation to Scottish alcohol licensing, um, especially given that the scheme has some notable crossover with uh, your own current proposals. Um, having watched a number of the other evidential sessions, as well as what's been discussed this morning, it seems to me that there's perhaps four key areas uh, for me uh, which may be of interest um, which I've picked up on, and I'll, I'll briefly go through them in, in the case that I have, and of course happy to take any questions that members may have as well. The four areas that I picked up on just from reviewing the evidence sessions were the, the issues over loyalty cards, tap rooms, uh, extended hours, and then also, if we have time, alcohol display regulations. 
So I thought I would tell you what happened in Scotland and what our experience is in relation to these things. In, uh, if we pick tap rooms first, um, there was a various discussions from your other um, uh, 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 person speaking this morning. I think it's fair to say that in Scotland over the last number of years there has been uh, an absolute boom of small local craft breweries all over uh, the length and breadth of Scotland, many of whom I represent and have secured licences for, and they supply local beer to the pubs in the local area as well as to shops, and many of them do tap rooms. The presence of tap rooms in brewery premises in Scotland is uh, a, a completely uncontroversial topic, um, which appears not to be the case in Northern Ireland, which perhaps to the, the licence moratorium, but from Scottish business in perspective, um, my experience is that local publicans are supportive of local breweries uh, wanting to provide a or visitor facility like a tap room because it creates added value to the wider attraction and amenity of a local area. I think the Scottish perspective is that very much a shared, a shared success uh, where you have attractions in a particular area and those attractions are, are invested in and become more attractive. That is a shared success for multiple businesses and community in that area, and that's that's the experience that I think Scotland has to offer. Um, you know, the, the Scottish breweries, I think we're up at something like 120 independent breweries in Scotland now, which is you know, a fantastic number. Uh, they did absolutely thrive pre-COVID, but even post-lockdown, when unlicensed breweries were suddenly without a route to market, all of the, the pubs and restaurants closed down, um, a, a significant majority of Scottish local licensing boards, the authorities that issued were very supportive in granting special temporary licenses so that these breweries could sell direct to the public. Um, but breweries have survived lockdown one uh, in the latter part of last year. Uh, as a result of those special licenses, many of them have gone on to secure and apply for dual licenses. So, um, Probably all fair also to say that tap rooms are not for every small brewery. It's not for every brewery to offer some facility of that nature. A default permission in the Scottish experience, but it's something which more and more breweries are going to do and have been able to do. And the Scottish licensing authorities have supported the state uh, lockdown. I think it's accepted that the, or the wider, pardon the pun, tapestry. <laughs> to boost local tourism and experience communities and jobs in an area. Um, another point I wanted to make was that uh, crossover and takeover brews are very popular and successful in the Scottish market as well. One of the members asked a question of the gentleman from the tourist body earlier on this point. I think from a Scottish perspective it, it is something which is very popular. You see breweries joining up with one another to produce space, particular beers, uh, fairly regularly um, in Scotland. So that's a bit of an insight into tap rooms in Scotland, and I hope that's helpful. Um, loyalty cards was another uh, topic that I discerned from earlier evidence. Um, these, are, these schemes are lawful in Scotland because uh, alcohol can be gained through points, loyalty cards, where uh, uh, we uh, employ the concept of equivalency. So, in other words, in order to get points in a loyalty scheme, you've had to buy other products. You've had to uh, pay money uh, in order to get those benefits. 
There was a bit of an interesting interplay with minimum pricing. I'm sure the members will be aware that minimum pricing has been in Scotland for a few years now. It's, it's May 2018 when it was introduced, so there was a very interesting interplay between minimum pricing and loyalty card. Scottish Government's position, and indeed now the law, it is that minimum pricing um, and loyalty cards can coexist. And where a loyalty card reduces the cost of an alcoholic item, uh, which may reduce the value of that item below the minimum price, that's still considered to be off because the loyalty points equate to a cash equivalent. So it's this cash equivalency which rules the day, as it were, when it comes to the use of uh, loyalty cards. So this is something that we're having in supermarkets and indeed other retailers uh, across the country and works quite well with the systems that we have, including uh, the very uh, famous or, or even infamous, depending on your view, uh, a condition of minimum pricing. The other topic which me to, which could be of some interest to the committee was about later hours and extensions. Now, putting COVID in the lockdown period one side, I think it is fair to say that there has been absolutely a clear move to later hours culture uh, over some years. People start their night out later, they therefore want to stay out late. In Scotland, there is a phenomenon which has been observed and accepted by local Scottish licensing boards. I should say very briefly that Scottish licensing boards are not the council, they are an independent creature, albeit that it is local councillors that sit on the board, but they are independent from decisions by the local authority. And Scottish licensing boards have reacted to this well-observed phenomenon, phenomenon of this diverse culture. Many licensing boards have introduced uh, pilot projects to allow premises to trade later, perhaps the first and Probably most famous was Fife, the, the Fife area, um, where premises in places like Kirkcaldy were allowed to trade until 4am. Now, when this proposition was put forward, Police Scotland, uh, the single police authority in Scotland, they were, I think it's true to say, very concerned about the idea of later hours. They were very concerned about antisocial behaviour, about are we just putting grief back? an extra hour or two at the end of the night, and they did oppose the pilot project. The licensing board decided to run with it and give it a, a, a suck-it-and-see approach and run the thing for a year. Now, at the end of the year, these premises in Kirkcaldy and other parts of Berlin who had been trading to 4am were all called back in, along with the police review. And the police evidence was that they had completely reversed the position. And in fact, the police said it was the best thing that happened in relation to antisocial behaviour in that area because antisocial behaviour had gone down significantly. And part of the reason for that was that people were more relaxed and leisure. People were not rushing to finish their drinks at an earlier cut off time, or not rushing to get taxis and causing resource issues and tax. And there was a more, uh, uh, because of the more staggered and later times, People would go home uh, in fits and starts, and that created a real uh, impact, positive impact on social behaviour. So after the year Faith ended, the police actually supported it, and that is now the case in Faith that that has moved forward on that basis a few years ago now. There's various other examples. For example, in Glasgow City, there was a 4am pilot introduced for nightclubs. 
Uh, the club's own wanted to take advantage of that for a few months before the, the lockdown kicked in. Not really seen properly the impact of that going. But I think about smaller Scottish towns where similar projects have been run, places like Dumfries, Dumbarton, all of these uh, smaller and indeed in some rural areas have recognised the need uh, for later hours and have instituted these projects where they have granted uh, licences, permanent licences in some cases to later hours. And it, seem, it seems to have seems to have gone well. There's always, of course, uh, individual cases where perhaps you know there's antisocial behaviour and, and the licences can be, can be brought back in and varied and reduced where there is you know uh, individual cases that occur of that nature. But I think it is fair to say across Scotland there have been numerous local licensing boards who have granted later hours and those projects have been successful, not just for the operator and for the customers who want to go and stay out later, but for wider local communities and for the uh, authorities such licensing staff and police. So that's a few insights into the Scottish licensing system members. I hope that was useful. Um, but I'm quite disposed if you have any particular questions for me. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. And um, that certainly was very useful. Um, I know that it was you were listening in earlier as well and would have maybe heard, and you have heard in previous evidence sessions about this loyalty card issue and uh, and how that is going to pose us a great problem. As you, you said there, we don't have minimum unit pricing here um, and how, we're, how, we're, how the department are actually going to achieve what they want to achieve with, with the loyalty card issue is beyond me because um, all I can say is it, it will cause great problems to it will for, for many of our large retailers. Um, can I then take you back to the local producers issue and you, again you'll know you've, you've listened to some of our evidence we've had here and the, the conflicting evidence that we're getting along those lines but we do know that as part of our deliberations we're going to have to really look at this very seriously and we're going to have to look at the issue of tap rooms most definitely as well. Um, can I just ask you then, when it comes to the licensing in Scotland for local producers, um, what what way does the licensing work for that? How much does a license cost for that? Does it have a ballpark figure of, of what um, a local producer could be looking at um, for for to, to have that license and to have a tap room? Sure, happy to help with that. The, the, the licences for tap rooms in Scotland are essentially no different to the licences for any other type of on-sales premises. Uh, a pub, a bar, a restaurant, a nightclub. Every single on-sales licence in Scotland is compared to as a premises licence, and in fact the same system, although there are differences, the same system operates in England and Wales. So when you have a brewery that wants to sell alcohol on its premises, which is colloquially known as a, a tap room, the application process is identical to that to apply for a, a new pub or a new restaurant uh, which may be open. In terms of cost, um, the the, the uh, licensing fees available to the local authority are based on a slightly and linked to rateable value. The absolute maximum that can be charged is £2,000. Um, off the top of my head, based on my own experience as a solicitor that represents breweries, I would say that an average figure for a brewery to, to, to apply for a licensed facility would probably cost them somewhere between £1,500. Because the rateable value for a small unit, which may industrial state, was clearly going to be a lot smaller than, say, a five-star hotel. 
Okay, look, thank you for that, Stephen. And you know our, our licensing system here is very, very different. So it is. So it's just then, how would you see then that we proceed then with those licences? I mean, one to one and a half thousand pound based on readable value um, seems like a, a pretty fair enough price. Um, but what way do you see that if, if we progress this? Um, how do we how do we on how do we ensure that there is a fair price um, across the board here as well? Because there's certainly not a fair price when it comes to our licences over here. Um, whenever um, with the surrender principle and the the cost that some people are having to pay for a license here for um, for pubs or restaurants. Um, so just how do you think that we could progress that, or what would be a fair way of progressing it? If, if we put the, the surrender principle in this of moratorium point one side. And if I look at the licensing regimes and how those are uh, costed across other elements of the UK, England, Wales and Scotland, in the vast majority of cases, the fees are based on setting it to be cost neutral to the city. In other words, the fee apply for the license is based on what it would charge the what it would cost the authority to process the application. So in other words, local authorities should not profit from the application. Generally speaking, on a cost-neutral basis. Um, so so th that's a possibility that if you were to introduce a special licence uh, that, that was unaffected by the principle, then you could look to set a fee based on what it would cost the licence authority to process in time and try to work out a fee that way. Another example that you might use specifically for brewers, and I think this would only work for brewers, is a graded fee based on the amount of alcohol which is produced. And you may have, I'm sure you'll have brewers of different sizes, and perhaps therefore the amount of literage which is produced may be a relevant test as well. But ultimately, of course, members, it is a matter for you to decide how to proceed with this uh, this idea. Yeah, no, look, thank you for that, Stephen. It's just, I, I mean, I do understand as well where our... our where our pubs are coming from as well, where they're saying they've had to pay extortionate amount of money for their licence, they've got extortionate overheads and everything else, and they want to see a fair system as well. So it's, it's that balance, it's trying to balance that fair system for both, um, which, will, which I think will cause us and the department an issue um, on this going forward. I'm going to open up to members for some questions as well. The only person I have who you see whose hand up is at present is Kelly. So can anybody else let me know if they want to come in? And can I bring in Kelly then, please? And Stephen, um, very useful. I want to go back to your paper. Um, it's on our, our own pack, um, um, page 211 for our members, where you talk about lower age limits at events. Can you just pull that out a little bit more for us, where you say, for instance, birthday party? Um, there could be an issue for the police um, to enforce that and you mentioned about um, lower age limits. Thank you. Owen, I think, on that answer, if, if not to give them too much of a surprise, uh, as the Northern Ireland representative is probably more appropriate for him. And then, if necessary, I can, from a Scottish perspective, to get context. Hi Kelly, yeah, um, I think the NI local government um, are going to be giving evidence to you on this point as well. Yeah, it's just um, it's whether there should be a lower age limit considering those events, particularly ones that say a private function which might go on to 1am. Um, and it's just how you put those safeguards in place around all those um, factors. 
Okay, so I'm just sort of thinking, it, it isn't in your mind, for instance, if it was an 18th birthday party where alcohol can legally be sold, sold on the process, but it would be limited to 18 year olds. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I think I think we're on the same page. Okay, okay, um, and also just thinking about age as well, age verification for delivery. Um, have you any thought on how that could work, or the experience even you have from Scotland? Uh, if I go first on that one, in the Scottish system, um, the, the, the position with age verification is essentially no different to buying a pint in a pub or standing in the market. Um, if I order alcohol and it's not my person delivering the alcohol has to verify my age. If my teenage daughter, or, for example, uh, instead of me or my wife, then uh, either they would have to come and get me or produce uh, a show that they are 18 or over. The uh, Scottish system would also require refusal of delivery where the person who is attempting to receive the goods is under the influence, in the same way that uh, a drunk should not be served at a bar. At the Scottish system, there are also significant record-keeping requirements, so that if you are delivering alcohol, for example, the, the, the breweries we've been speaking about, there's a, 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 you know, a huge uh, amount of breweries who survive through home deliveries of product because they don't route to market. And what they have to do is to keep records. So there has to be a delivery book, a day book, the customer's details, the amount of alcohol that's been ordered. Um, you know, record keeping of that nature is a part of the license in Scotland. Thank you. Um, just then, my, I, have a, I have a couple more points here. Sporting events um, uh, and, and sporting, you know, um, you talked about having those events open throughout the year for um, younger people. Um, uh, just to, to get your thoughts on that, we know that there's a proposal that you could only do it maybe once during the year. What's your thoughts on that? Does it make it more difficult to just limit it to one pre or a few times per year? Or um, would you just rather say that, that it's the same rules for the summer as it is for the winter? I think that's one for Austin. Yeah, Kelly, yeah, that's what we're saying. So rather than limit it to the summer months, um, have it throughout the year. I think Stephen, that's how it would work in Scotland across um, your jurisdiction. There's no limit this summer. There's no summer month limit in terms of the sporting clubs. Okay, yeah. To be honest, that, to me, that makes sense and makes it easier, but I'm not sure why there's this limit put in. There was another part in your paper where you talked about um, people drinking alcohol in vehicles. I'm going to actually say to the chair, I think we need to write to the Department of Infrastructure. Um, a few years ago, there was legislation brought forward about consumption of alcohol in vehicles, and I think that's already within legislation here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true the points we raise, and it's whether it comes under this legislation, Kelly, or a different piece of legislation, because there has been issues in terms of bus drivers not wanting to take responsibility for that, so it's just where that legislation would sit. But it's just a relevant point we wanted to flag in terms of that, because it is very prevalent um, across our communities here, yeah. as you probably know. Party buses were a big concern yeah. back in my day when I was working in transport, but I know that there was um, prosecution of the driver if people were drinking on the bus um, so, or on the taxi. So um, it's something I think we need to match in with Department of Infrastructure on, on that one. But thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thanks, thanks Kelly. Um, Mark Durkin, can I bring Mark in? Thanks, Chair, and, and thank you guys for that. Well, we just got it on in the end, but I on, and that was the, the, the transport, I think. You get a lot of categorised as not that opportunity, and a bit more of a board 
going to do with. Because I, I, I remember when I was in the Department of Environment, this was an issue that caused headache and uh, the officials with heartache for many uh, parents and uh, transport providers out there. Now that it has been raised, I uh, would certainly concur with Kelly that it's not something that we can ignore. And we have to see if there is an opportunity all uh, through this legislation. Obviously, working with uh, the Department for Infrastructure, and I believe that also has a role in this. So, so I think you might have given us a bit more work to do as if we haven't enough. <laughs> but I'm sure, do you know of any examples of how other jurisdictions deal with this, or does it seem to be a, a, a particular issue here? Uh, certainly, I can answer that for Scotland and, and indeed I think for England and Wales. The, the Scottish system and the English and Welsh systems do allow vehicles to be licensed, but you've got to remember that we are coupled with the surrender moratorium. So the grant of new licenses uh, is based on the merits of that application as as, as, as a any whether or not there's another license that is uh, subsisting or not. So in Scotland, for example, it's quite common. Uh, the vehicles be licensed, then they will hold a premise bike. The same type of license that applies to a pub right. um, applies to a vehicle instead. And the, the benefit of that to the system is that the person that wants to run that business is to the police, is subject to a fit proper test, and the vehicle itself is also subject to you know safety checks to a extent. To a extent. That then brings that type of activity into the regulatory system. And I think that's the key part because when you've got those activities operating outside the system, how do you deal with them? Yeah. Whereas, if a licensing requirement for a vehicle, then those operators will have to keep it. means that the regulator can keep a check on them, the license can be reviewed every so often, the license can be revoked if the person is allowing underage drinking to happen, for example. Uh, and that brings it into the regulatory system, and I think that's the principal approach, certainly viewed in the upper constituent parts of the UK. Yeah, Mark, at present, our, our licensing categories under the Licensing Order 1986 doesn't include, it won't, it, you couldn't license a bus or a party bus, for instance, because just it just is, it probably wasn't envisaged when that was drafted, and it's not a category of license under that legislation. Okay, Th thanks, guys. I think it's something we might have to, to look at, or in collaboration with other committees and departments. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, I have no other members who have indicated that they want to um, comment or ask anything at this stage. So can I thank you, Stephen and Owen, um, for coming along and briefing us today, and thank you for your submission as well and our call for evidence. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the Okay. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you to the committee. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, members, we're going to then move on to agenda item number nine, um, which is a briefing from the Safeguarding Board, again on our licensing and registration of clubs amendment bill. Members, there's no papers for this agenda. It will just be an oral briefing. So can I welcome to the meeting Bernie McNally and Andrew Thompson. These um, are both very welcome. Can I ask then, um, Bernie, I think it's yourself that is going to provide us with an oral brief. Um, and you've up to 10 minutes, Bernie, so if you want to go ahead. Okay, good morning, everyone. I think it's still morning, so good morning. Um, can you hear me okay? Can indeed, yes. Yes, okay. Good morning. My name's Bernie McNally, and I'm the chair of the Safeguarding Board for Northern Ireland. And I think um, our presentation here, this 10-minute presentation, will be in two parts. 
I will make some comments on the context of the safeguarding board and the, and the issues around the, the licensing laws in relation to that. And then Andy will make more specific comments on some of the changes that are being proposed. Um, well, the safeguarding board, as most of you will know, is a membership organisation. It's made up of 27 members. And those members include the police, social services, education, probation service, youth justice agency, and we have members of the voluntary and community sector on our board. So it's a membership partnership, really, that um, its main function is to safeguard and promote the welfare of children in Northern Ireland by coordinating the work of the various organisations that are members and ensuring the effectiveness of each of the organisations. So we, we really try to make sure that the, the, the various organisations don't work in their own silos, that they work collaboratively and collectively on matters of safeguarding. So. Um, we have, we're not a regulator, but um, because the regulators are all associated with the, the various organizations like the policing board or the or QIA or whatever, we're, we're more an enabler to enable these organizations to work, work effectively. And uh, the safeguarding board has three key priorities um, going forward at, in, in, their, in their latest strategic plan. Um, we have the mental health and well-being of young children and young people is one of our key priorities, domestic balance, and neglect of children. And as you can imagine, alcohol is a factor in all three of these key issues. And I suppose um, generally we would say anything that increases accessibility to alcohol um, to either the parents or the children will have an impact on those three issues. Um, and the Safeguarding Board are very acutely aware that all of the members are acutely aware of the dangers of alcohol misuse among children and their parents. Um, and there's no, there's no good news story in relation to that. Um, we have issues relating to domestic violence, risky behaviour by children, suicide, health issues, public order issues. So all of those issues we are um, dealing on a day-to-day -day basis with the fallout from that. However, on the positive side of, of this, the, the research would indicate that some positive trends in relation to alcohol consumption by children and young people and they are, the, the, the trends are all downwards, that children are drinking less, that they're drinking less frequently, um, and when they do drink, they're drinking less binge-like binge behaviour, although they still binge, but that these, these, these trends are all on the downward um, trends, so we're quite positive about that. And there's been a 40% increase in the number of children who can to describe themselves as teetotal. So that's really, um, that, those are really positive things. Um, I suppose um, in relation to the, the, the legislation that you're proposing today, it's all about building in safeguards. And I'm going to hand over now to Andy Thompson, who's the chair of our, uh, one of our committees, to give us some more specific um, detail on that. Okay, thank you, Bernie. Thank you, Bernie. And thank you, Chair. Can you hear me okay? I can indeed, Andrew. Probably. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd just like to, first of all, thank the committee for having us before you today. And I'd like to look at some of the specific proposed changes that especially affect the laws around children on licensed premises and the accessibility to alcohol. Uh, they are attendance of children at underage functions after 9pm, children remaining at family functions after 9pm, and sporting clubs extending the time children can remain, especially during summer months. The board is ever mindful that any extension to the time children may stay on licensed premises could influence their relationship with alcohol. But the board does also consider the positive impact 
very social and cultural experiences can have on the child. If the functions highlighted in the proposed amendments are appropriately considered and approved with regulated restrictions enforced to ensure the safeguarding of those children in attendance, then the board feels that there are benefits to children in developing their social interactions in an environment that is safeguarding aware, with identified individuals trained and experienced in child protection. Most clubs and event locations will now have a child protection officer trained and vigilant in safeguarding children. Functions close to outsiders with regulated oversight could be beneficial locations for children to socialise, as opposed to the on-scene, unregulated alternative. Family functions with the proper controls would allow children to be more fully involved in the major family occasions and celebrations, which are highlights in the family calendar. Sporting clubs provide a refuge of fitness, exercise, teamwork and companionship. Often in summer months, games like golf, football and GAA will not end until after 9pm and the opportunity for under-18s to engage for a short time to conclude their event and the day should be seen, again if properly regulated in the complete sense of the word, as opportunities for children to develop physically and emotionally. Premises like those mentioned in the proposed changes to the regulations are those with experience in the presence of children, with appropriate limitations and are generally seen as safe places. Organisations like Sports NI have worked tirelessly to enhance child protection awareness and training. Safeguarding policies are commonplace and social experiences are valuable lessons for children. Well-managed and regulated events can be used to reduce the draw of on-scene, unregulated actions some children are attracted towards. In relation to some of these other specific items, self-service vending machines in locations or premises where children could have access to alcohol are not facilities the SBNI could support. Formal approval and oversight by the Department of Health of regulated codes of practice, of which a breach could have licensing consequences, are a positive approach. Self-regulated codes of practice lose some element of public confidence over those, over those seen as formal where non-compliance has possible consequences. That, in the first stage, would hopefully encourage compliance, but if not, they at least allow for action to be taken to remove, remove those who increase risk from the marketplace. On the particular point of the amendment re-advertising, the SBNI see this as a, a good reminder as to the rules regarding clubs and admission, and that's in regards to the specific advertising of events. On a more general point in relation to advertising, advertising alcohol in a child-friendly environment is questionable on behalf of the SBNI. Research tends to show advertising increases awareness and cultural acceptance. The view of the SBNI is that less advertising of alcohol is, a, is generally a better thing in the world of children. It is accepted that a considerable level of financial support and funding is created from this activity, and many organisations benefit from the income. But if we remember that they said snooker would collapse after the embassy was removed from the World Championship, and Formula One would go under if Marlborough's involvement and support was excluded. This is not just a child safeguarding debate in relation to advertising, and many others will have a significant view and different approach. The view of the SBNI is that the link between things that are good and wholesome, like sport, should not have the obvious and calculated attachment of alcohol. With the awareness that advertisement, advertising is a key element and driver of demand and has a significant cultural influence, 
Our view is directed purely at the possible influence on children openly advertising alcohol could have, especially with the absence of any controls over content, location or limitation on audience access. SBNI's general position to the committee this morning is that we are not pro-alcohol and we are not anti-hospitality. Society should be open to change in a managed and safe fashion. The SBNI has a safeguarding stance. Children need safeguarding well-being and protection. If we can provide well-being in line with safeguarding, then that should be our goal. With the correct positive measures, improving the social lives of children would be both physically and emotionally beneficial. Family life and safely derived peer events in children's lives are good for mental and general well-being. Social experiences and development are good for children. The importance is the balance between facilitation of these experiences and ensuring built-in legislative protective measures which ensure adult oversight and adherence to a safe environment. The question is, do we think the proposed amendments achieve this? I think given the move to replicate the, posit the current positive examples in places like sporting clubs is a good place to start. Some of the things we like are the codes of practice, identified individuals responsible for safe practice, exclusion of alcohol when not directly supervised by parents, and building on good practice and evidence of responsible control in clubs. We all see those as encouraged support, supportive changes uh, to control uh, the environment that the amendments would bring about. Thank you very much, Chair. Okay, Andrew, thank you for that, and thank you, Bernie. Um, I just want to touch on a couple of points that you'd made there, and you, I think I absolutely agree with you 100%. Our, our sporting clubs have some of the absolute best child protection policies in place, uh, and we know that has had to happen because of, of various historical events. But, but they're absolutely, I know anybody who's ever been involved with any of those sporting clubs, directly or indirectly, knows that the hoops that they have to jump through with uh, through social services and the police um, in order. Um, for, for, for those children to, to, to be protected the best that they very can. So I agree when you said that, Andrew, that that should be replicated across. So whenever we're looking now at then the likes of, of hotels or bars or wherever else where there's functions taking place, whether, um, whether that's a, a wedding or whether that's an underage formal, whatever that might be, what checks are there put in place right now on those premises when it comes to child protection and safeguarding, you know, some very uh, vulnerable young adults as well um, that would be attending those events. Are there checks in place already? Do they, do the hotels and bars that hold these events have to go through the same rigorous checks as our sporting clubs when it comes to social services and the PSNI? Oh, oh, perhaps could I um, um, mention or discuss that with you? Um, well, the, the SBNI have been doing a lot of work over the last... Um, uh, three or four years with what we call the nighttime economy in relation to child protection matters and to increase awareness among hotels, taxi drivers, um, uh, pubs and clubs about the um, dangers of the nighttime economy for some young people and particularly in relation to child sexual exploitation and to make people aware of the dangers in relation to children and um, particularly where there's alcohol involved. So we, we are doing a lot of work. They don't have the same uh, regulation as uh, a sports club or a private members club would have in relation to 
um, because they 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 come under the auspices of, say, for example, Sport NI and their own um, sporting bodies who have all signed up to child protection um, uh, regulation and child protection procedures. And, and many many sporting areas don't get any grants, for example, if they don't have a child designated child protection officer. Um, I suppose in relation to um, the hotels having functions, say, a school formal, um, well, our understanding is that, that that will be an non-alcohol um, issue, and it's about making sure that that venue is not linked with a bar and that there are not people um, drinking in that. A family event, um, we consider the best protectors of children are their parents or their, or their um, significant family members. So we have an expectation that when children are in a wedding or in a, 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 a granny's birthday party or whatever the event is, that the supervision of those children, those young people, are the responsibility still of their parents. And I suppose that's why we make a differentiation between a child going into a pub where they're not supervised by a parent and a child going into a pub where they are supervised by a parent in a controlled environment and that these are private members' functions so that other members of the public are not allowed into those into those venues when the children are there. So I hope that answers your question, but we don't have any... The, the, the hotels, well, they might have codes of conduct and they may... Uh, join with the best BNI and attend some of our courses on, on child protection awareness. I'm not aware that they have any uh, regulation in that regard. Okay. Um, is it something that we need to look at then, um, uh, Bernie, going forward? I mean, the best well in the world, I mean, the, the children and young people and teenagers especially, I've had two of them, um, can... Uh, you can't have them under your gaze 24-7 if you're attending something and an event with them. And there are people out there, there are people out there that groom, there are people out there that um, very much know how to attract those young people away from their parents and whatever else. They, they do it, they do it very well. And they, they work within all of our industries. They're not just, um, they work within all industries. So is there something we need to look at to have some more uh, formal um Clause around that whole sort of that child exploitation and and um, child protection. Um, if if these other events or these other spaces want to hold events um, for young people to be included in those events, do they need to then comply in the way um, our the way that, for example our sporting clubs comply? Is there something we need to do around yeah. that? Well, well, all of these venues and, and everyone is is is. Um, has to abide by the law of the land and they have to abide by the law in relation to the current protection of children and young people. Um, I suppose it's trying to get that uh, um, balance in relation to where the children go for their socialising and we feel that they should be under the, under the watchful gaze of an, a, a responsible parent as much as possible. Um, and And if we don't provide those venues for those children or if we say they have to go home at nine o'clock from those venues, we know from our experience that those children will go somewhere else. So they'll go somewhere that's un unseen, they'll go to parks or, or, or um, um, party houses or whatever. So uh, having them where you can see them is, is probably the number one way of protecting them. So keep plenty of eyes on them. We also know that, that um, we've been doing some work, you know, haven't done that work with the nighttime economy. The, the, um, for example, in, in taxi driving, for example, we have been trying to make sure that taxi drivers have a, a basic child protection awareness. 
so that they're not dropping children off at um, dodgy houses or people's houses that, that are and they're not having children in the back of their taxi with a, an adult that is 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 um, suspect or whatever. So we're trying to work with the taxi companies. Um, and we work with the Department of Infrastructure on that, and we have some regulation around that now. That in order to get their taxi license, they have to have undergone um, child protection training and child protection awareness, and they'll have to do that on a regular basis. So we are working with that. Um, whether you can have a, a regulation that regulates the entire hospitality outside what we already have in terms of the law and the public order stuff that the police deal with, I'm not 100% sure what that would look like. But I'm happy to discuss it with whoever whoever needs needs to develop that that type of uh, regulation. Yeah, I suppose, Bernie. I've just um, put on my social work head again from my previous career before I became an MLA, and when looking at this and thinking, you know, how how do we make this um, more secure to protect children? Um, because yeah. that's what we need to be doing. But I'll move on then. I just want to then just touch on quickly on the advertising side of it. And again, as I said, our sports clubs are fantastic models of, of how that whole child protection um, policy can be done well. But then we know that they walk straight onto a football pitch or whatever type of fit pitch, and there you'll see hoardings all around it, advertising um, alcohol. Um, in many of our, 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 our local towns here. Um, what's, your, what's, the, what's your views on that? Well, um, I'll hand over Dandy in a moment, but I, I propose my general view is that um, in order to, you know, I mentioned that there was a reduction in the a number of children here drinking and, and, and the, the frequency of drinking and the extent that they're drinking. And I think a lot of that comes down to a change in culture that we've, we've tried to change away from that culture that drinking is the only place that you can socialize and where, you, where young people can feel happy. And also we've got away from that idea that, uh, that um, alcohol is, is so bad that children actually want to drink it. Right? So we're trying to get that balance in, in, in the culture. But we, we think that anything that promotes alcohol as a positive thing is not good because it is not positive for children and it's not positive for their families. It's not positive for we see it every single day in relation to domestic violence and in relation to um, poor health outcomes for children and their parents in terms of children taking risky behaviour. So there's nothing positive about um, alcohol, but what we what we think is that um, to, we, to reduce down as much the advertising as we can, because if you take if you take something like, I don't want to pick out any particular sport, but if you take something like Guinness or Harp or some of these uh, uh, Irish uh, alcohol um, brands, and you you say, uh, well, they're they're, they're um, sponsoring one of the biggest uh, GA events in the country, or one of the biggest rugby events in the country, or one of the biggest soccer events in the country. Children will see that as a positive uh, reinforcement of what alcohol is, and I think we need to try to reduce that and change that uh, uh, that cultural. Uh, um, our love affair with uh, uh, alcohol here in Ireland has to has to has to change, and 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 I think it is changing, but it's slow. And I think advertising is a key element of that. Uh, maybe Andy wants to make a comment on that more specifically. Well, um, I think you've answered it very well. Um, just probably reiterate the, the, the complications, and the safeguarding board is very aware that um, this is a much broader debate. Than just in relation to safeguarding, um, but our our view is that that Bernie has expressed, but very complicated issue in regards to 
Um, you know, just given one of the elements that Bernie had mentioned, the Guinness, say, and the rugby, um, how do you prevent that from, you know, matches in Dublin will be streamed live on television here. You know, children who, you know, teenagers, both boys and girls who play rugby, will be watching that avidly. You know, so uh, you know, I think the general idea is limit as much as, much as possible the access children would have to, to alcohol advertising but accept the fact that it's a very, very complicated issue and one that will take a, a massive debate and it'll have to probably be done on a national basis. Okay, Andrew, look, thank you. And I know we're going to be looking at the, the whole gambling legislation coming up, not in another bill, and we'll be looking around the advertising of gambling as well, whether that's on football grounds and shirts. So it's, it's part of a bigger issue of how we, that is, I mean, it's blatant in your face advertising constantly when you watch any of these sports. And as you said earlier, Andrew, um, like when snooker did take away, when Embassy started advertising on the on the snooker and Marlborough on the on the racing, um, these things continued without any hassle and without any problem. And we're still able to continue to this day without that major sponsorship blazoned across everything that we saw on our screens. Um, so I think it is something that we probably will have to look at closely. Um, going forward, both in this bill and the gambling bill. Look, thank you. That's all from me at the moment. I only have Kelly, who has um, uh, said that she wants to ask a question. So, Kelly. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you, Bernie and Andrew. Andrew, I think that we maybe sat on a committee together at some stage, away at the time that Access NI was maybe being developed across community and voluntary sector. Now, that's a while ago. Um, thank you very much. Uh, to be honest, the Chair has asked quite a few of my questions, but there's, there's something that has come up with previous witness um, evidence sessions that I would like to pick your brains on to see how we can work with this. Age verification. Now, if a, if a young person is learning to drive or they happen to have a passport or whatever it may be, they may have appropriate documentation. Um, but I'm just wondering, as we heard before um, with the, the licensing guys there, so if you have an 18th birthday party, and say that that person's at upper sixth in school or at work or whatever, and they've invited their friends to it, um, there was a, a, a consideration uh, made that a lower age limit should be attached to those types of parties. Um, but how do we prove, how do we get verifi age verification from children? You know, if it was a lower age, say 16 or 15 or whatever it may be. Mm. Well, it's very difficult um, because, because um, uh, you know, I remember when I was a student, and that wasn't yesterday, um, and going to America, and America had a... a a 21 age group, uh, age limit for children, and of course we were all under 21 because we were all students. Um, I, I don't know any student, not that I'm admitting this, but I don't know any student that didn't go with some false ID to America to get into bars and clubs because they knew that there was a 21 age limit. And with modern technology, they can fake those IDs easily, the, you know, the pictures, the laminated covers, whatever. And it's it's very very difficult, and a lot of um, bars and and off licence and all are now now saying twenty one because at least if they get it, you know that gives them a bit of margin for error. So if they say you can't come into our premises unless you're over twenty one, or you can't get alcohol sold at an off licence unless you're twenty one. I think that 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 gives them that. But you know what's the age difference between a seventeen and three quarters and an eighteen in one day? You know, there's not much difference, and it's all. I think it's almost impossible for the the bar staff, you know, to. I know that I'm involved in some uh, clubs, and we don't have any underage. Uh, have those 18 
birthday parties because they're really hard to place and really hard to manage. Glad to hear you saying that because I have an 18th birthday party coming up now and, and half of me sort of hoping that lockdown's still in place when that happens. But um, uh, one of the other witnesses had given us um, um, a bit of concern about the legislation, well, gave me a bit of concern about the legislation when it talked about 16 and 17-year-olds not being allowed to take delivery of alcohol if they happen to work in a bar or a restaurant when there happens to be um, you know, a delivery for their employer. Um, that makes a difference for those people who are still in bracket of being a child um, but prevents them from taking part in, in part of their job. Now, we do know that under health and safety, there are protections for under 18-year-old employees, but I was just wondering what you thought about, about that issue. Well, actually, this came up at our, uh, not this particular issue, but the issue of work permits and employ child employment permits came up at our, our safeguarding board meeting yesterday. And actually, the Education Authority have a role here in, in terms of monitoring those um employment uh, those employment permits for uh, young people and we are seeing a, an, an increase in the number of young people um, we were looking recently at the at the young people who are engaged in uh, the, the industry the film industry now that's growing here in Northern Ireland for example child actors or or additionals or whatever they're called that go go along to these events and how they're managed and how they Chaperoned, you know, because it's very, you know, it's very grave dangers for young people in among those adults. We know from the whole Me Too movement in relation to, you know, young people trying to get become have a career in, in, the, in that industry. So we're acutely aware of young people in adult environments. Um, it's very, it's hard to know. I just couldn't get my head around this when I was thinking about this particular issue. I just couldn't get my head around a young person who works in a pub. So they're in the pub all the time. What the difference is between them serving pints behind the bar or collecting glasses or whatever they're doing or serving drink to the to the um, the punters and, and taking working in the storehouse and taking in a keg of beer from the, the, the wholesaler, I just couldn't get my head around that. So I think there is something around looking at the work permit generally for young people working in these types of industries that there is a, a, a different there's a different danger and. You know, one of our members yesterday raised that you're going to increase the accessibility in terms of, say, over the holiday period at Easter. Um, that's going to be more kids working longer hours. So that needs to be controlled to make sure, because that's, that's when we all worked as, as teenagers. We worked at, at our summer holidays and our Easter holidays. So I think we have to be um, mindful of any change has another, um, has another impact, that, that unintentional consequence, if you like. And that we need. To, uh, so were, those two child employment work permits. Certainly, after m the meeting yesterday, I I thought I'm going to need to have a, a meeting with the education authority and talk to them a little bit more about this and find out what exactly, what are their issues and how they deal with these matters. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I know that um, I'm from a rural area, and the only places that. 16 and 17 year olds can get to get work locally is either in the local bar or a local corner shop or garage and and, and that's it so it, it, it is as we know throughout covid that has been the vast amount of students that have lost jobs or or been furloughed have been in the hospitality industry one of the other things i wanted to ask you about is child protection issues so if you have um a child who appears at a pub i've just given this example but it's it could apply anywhere in northern Ireland. a child who appears at a pub and rightly so are, they are a child, um, they're not supposed to be there, they're not supposed to be trying to get in, um, and whoever on the door turns them away. But 
they're trying to get into the pub at a time that is much later because of the additional operating hours. As far as child protection issues are concerned, if that person has been trained and they recognise that there is there's a child protection issue, it could well be that this child is being urged by another adult or whatever. Um, the out of our reporting mechanisms, does this legislation and the additional hours cause any difficulties for reporting? Is it just go to the police? Or because I know whenever my previous work in, in community and voluntary sector, it was very difficult to get trust people outside of working hours. Um, so I'm just wondering, is there anything that we need to think about? Now, it may well be that this would be part of a code of practice, but is there anything there in joined up working between organisations that we need to be cognizant of for those pubs, bars, restaurants, hotels, whatever it may be, um, if there is a child protection issue and reporting that? Okay. Again, we work with the nighttime economy and the clubs and pubs uh, are, uh, yeah, and the sporting eyes regulation around um, sporting organisations in terms of getting advice on um, there's one thing about getting advice, what should I do? So they have designated officers and stuff and what should I do? They don't want to be a, a hammer to crack an egg. So they don't want to be dialing 999 for the police for some wee lad trying to get into just go home, son, and, and behave yourself. So you're trying to balance that. But if you have a serious child protection concern, um, all of these organizations are really aware. We have two, at least three mechanisms. One is the police, obviously, um, are the first port of call after, after hours if there's an emergency. And we also have a 24-hour social work service that, you know, has been around for um, probably about 10 years now. We've had this um, emergency social work service. So if you didn't have the number for that, it's in obviously online or whatever. But if you did, weren't able to contact them, the police will contact those people for you. And and the third area is obviously the NSPCC child line, which is manned 24 hours a day as well. So if it, if there's an issue. Um, that people can't get the police, can't get social services in. There's the, the third option is, is NSPCC. So I think all those bases are covered. But I think the, the issue that I would be saying is if those staff are trained well, so if you have a person on the door, I'm not sure whether it's politically correct to call them bouncers anymore or whatever the person on the door is, if they, ha if they are properly trained to um, deal with these young people in a sensitive way, and maybe get them a taxi or maybe say, I'll call your mum, give us your number and I'll call your mum and they'll see comfrey. If they can deal with these things in a de-escalation way, I think that that's much preferable than the bigger, you know, the, 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 the force of the state coming in to look at this. And can I just, my final question, thank you, is where a premises, because I know and I think we probably all could put our hands on our hearts and say there are bars in different places across every part of the country said, well, you know, rightly, there's underage drinking taking place. The police know it. The man on the street knows it. Um, if there is a premises that is persistently flouting that, may even have been prosecuted for doing it, um, do you think that that is an issue that should be considered at their license review? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Any uh, the license is there to um, to regulate and protect the the, 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 the community, and I, I absolutely believe that if a, an organisation is deliberately flouting those rules. For all the reasons I've said in relation to young people and the dangers of alcohol with young people, and if the quarters of us, us are working to try and reduce alcohol with young people, trying to protect children from alcohol, and, and a regulated uh, uh, establishment is deliberately fighting those laws, I don't think they should be, I don't think their license should be um, uh, continued. I think that that's yeah. absolutely. So 
we can keep that within that and and if there is a code of practice coming through that has been talked about by different witnesses that that should be mm -hmm. definitely part of that as well as the license thank you very much folks um all that we can do to protect young people in this day and age um i know that when I think probably when I was younger and my daughter now that she's of that 17 year old age, you put like a makeup on and you cannot tell the difference what age they are. So it, it makes it extraordinarily difficult for the people who have the licenses. Um, and then you've got young people who are doing all that they can with their fake IDs and stuff to, to go past the license rules. But thank you very much for the work that you do. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Kelly. And I, no other member has indicated they want to ask anything. So can I also then just finish by saying thank you again to Bernie and to Andrew um, for joining thank us you, today. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, bye. members, we're going to move on, on to agenda item 10, which is an SL1, and it's the Private Tenancies Coronavirus Modifications Regulations Northern Ireland 2021. You'll find the papers for this at page. 220 of your meeting pack. Um, this is to extend the emergency period beyond the 30th of September to the 31st of March 2021. This proposed rule further extends this emergency period beyond the 31st of March 2021 to the 30th of September 2021. Um, our members content with the department to proceed to make this rule. Sorry, go ahead, Andy. Sir, can I just declare interest, private sector landlord, please? Absolutely, no problem. Thank you for that. Um, members content that we proceed, the department proceed to make this rule? Yeah? Yeah. Great, great stuff. Okay. Then can you turn to agenda item 11, which is SR 2021 forward slash 28, the loans for mortgage interest amendment regulations Northern Ireland 2021. You'll find a copy of this SR at page 224. Again, can I ask if men members, members any objection to the rule? No. no objection to drill. Then can I put the question that the Committee for Communities has considered SR 2021 forward slash 28, the loans for mortgage interest amendment regulations Northern Ireland 2021 and subject to the examiner's statutory rules report has no objection to the rule. Okay, members, can we move then on to agenda item 12, which is SR 2021-31. Sorry, somebody want to say something? Chair, sorry, I was hoping to come in if you don't mind. I was going to say, actually, do you see that piece of work? I know it's coming through from the department, but especially on the part to do with domestic violence, um, that's a very good news story that we actually have that protections has, has been corrected and is included. I don't know if that's something that maybe, Chair, you want to put out a press release on just to say that that protection is in place. Yep, okay. Look, thank you for that, Kelly. We'll get the committee clerk to look at that, so we will. That's okay. Okay. Um, agenda item 12, then, members, SR 2021-31, the Local Government Capital Finance and Accounting Coronavirus Amendment Regulations, Northern Ireland 21, or 2021. Members, you have a copy of this SR at page 233. Again, can I ask if any members any objection to this rule? No objections? Okay, I'll put the question then that the Committee for Communities has considered SR 2021 forward slash 31, the Local Government Capital Finance and Accounting Accounting Coronavirus Amendment Regulations. Hold on, I'm on the wrong page. <laughs> Bear with me. Sorry, I'm going to go back and read that again, just so it's read into the record. That the Committee for Communities has considered SR 2021-31, the Local Government Capital Finance and Accounting Coronavirus Amendment Regulations, Northern Ireland <coughs> 2021, on subject to the Examiner of Statutory Rules Report, has no objection to the rules. 
Okay, I'll move on then to agenda item 13, which is correspondence. Uh, members, you'll find the memo at page 240 of your meeting pack. Can I draw your attention just to one item, and that's at page 316, and it's in relation to the review of Charity Commission. Um, this email is from an individual who has been in regular contact with the committee, who has concerns about the review and the lack of involvement of the department. The individual, the individual also expresses concern that the final report will only be made available to the department uh, will only be available to the department on request. Um, so can I ask members, are they content that we forward a copy of this email to the department for response? Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. Other than that, I have nothing else to highlight under correspondence. Any other members? Kelly, see your hand up. Yes, thank you, Chair. Um, just to say that I met with um, Oh, what are they called? The Independent Scientific Advice Advisory Group. Um, it's on page three two three, and I spoke um, not as as deputy chair of the committee, but just as a as a working MLA. Um, but I think that I would like to draw to attention of the committee. I think that the proposals that have been put forward by the group are extremely interesting. Um, it's a way, or what they're proposing is a method by which we encourage people who. Cannot work from home to self isolate by providing support. Scotland already has this in place, and I know we have the discretionary support, but discretionary support is not working as I don't think it's working as well as it could be. Um, in sending this forward to the the department, I would like to ask the department what is their response to this proposal, and what is their considerations in the welfare mitigations going forward, particularly for this one. Um, I know welfare mitigations is a more general thing, but this is a COVID mitigation, um, and if something like that might be able to be um, affordable and accepted. Okay, I know. We, I know the member we were we were for, forwarding this letter through to the department to ask them to make comment on it. Kelly, do you want to take it further than that? Then, do you want to ask something yeah. specific? Yeah, it's just to ask if if this is you know it's. Are they okay? We're asking them. Are they going to take it forward? But it's it's their response to it, and um, you know their thinking's on this self isolation grant proposal that includes, as Andy has talked about earlier today, increasing the maximum income floor um, and so on, um, because that will have an input into welfare mitigations. Okay. All right. We'll do that. Members agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Chair. I'm just coming on that, and this has to be done as a distinct piece of work as opposed to the review and the discretionary support that we're not going to hear back from until June because yeah. I mean, this is to do with the, the pandemic this is about uh, protecting people's health as well as their incomes and not even just those individuals but those around them as well and I know like I'd actually raised it with the finance minister among among others previously I'm not a scientist or epidemiologist but it would be hard to conclude that the fact that we have had a satisfactory self isolation self isolation has contributed in some way to the spread or transmission of the virus. Okay, all right. Thank you for that, Mark. Any other members? Anything they want to highlight through correspondence? Chair. Yep. Go ahead, Jeanette. Yeah, yeah. Just, just on that, I think you know the DFC have already done what they have agreed to do through the discretionary support payment, and I think in other areas, you know, the COVID isolation grant it actually sits with the Department for Health, um, and maybe that, that that's something that health should should be looking at as well. Okay. Yep. Thank you for for bringing that point in as well. 
Um, yeah. I, I suppose if we can get that letter off this week, then about this um, to do with this letter that we have received, get it off to our department and see what they answer back. And if it is something yeah. we need to then take to another department, we'll do that. Yeah. The members yeah. okay with all of that then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank okay. You. I'm going to move on then to agenda item 14, which is our forward work program. Members at the meeting of the 25th of February. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> That's wrong, yeah. isn't it? No, it's next week. No, it's not. Next week's 25th, yeah. Next week. Next week is the 25th, Mike. Okay, I think yeah. today was the 25th. I'm away ahead of myself, so we are. So, no, it's not wrong. Apologies. Make me think I'm going <laughs> Members, at the meeting next week, the 25th of February 2021, we were briefed by the following organisations, again, on the licensing and registration um, of Clubs Amendment Bill. We'll have Nilgen, we'll have the PSNIN, we'll have NI Alcohol and Drug Alliance, and then we'll also have Sterling University. And Sorry, Chair, I'm not picking you up at all there. There's a lot of background noise at the table. Okay, I will try again. So if people can stay still for me, do I read it out? Next week, we're going to have in NILGA, the PSNI, Northern Ireland Alcohol and Drug Alliance, and also Stirling University. So we'll have four briefings next week on the, the, the licensing bill. So we have. So members, any comments on that are content to note? Chair. Sorry, Sinead, did you want to say something? Yes, yeah, Chair. Listen, that, that, that sounds, um, next week's uh, evidence session sounds good. I just have a concern, um, and I don't know if any other members are picking up on this over the last few weeks. I feel there's been a, there's been a, a real duplication in terms of the, the type of evidence that we're getting. Um, and I, th I think a lot of the questions, I think they'll probably struggling to find new ways and new questions to ask the different um the different organisations that are coming to give us give us give us evidence, and you know, I, I completely appreciate the fact that we have to be thorough in our scrutiny role here. But you know, I think the sector will be looking to us now um, as discussions are underway about you know the sector opening up again. Um, and you know, I think we should endeavour as much as possible to try and align with that, um, whether that's you know in terms of getting more written submissions, but. I certainly would like to have a, a clear understanding of when we will actually be getting to um, that clause by clause scrutiny um, that everybody's waiting on, waiting on us to get to. So it's I, I just want to I just want to put that on, you know out there. Um, I just feel like some of the evidence sessions are not that they're unnecessary, but they're they're a bit samey and they're and, and they're being duplicated in terms of the the evidence that we're getting and our our ability to sort of ask different questions and new questions um, of those organisations. So. I just wanted to put that out there, Chair. Okay, thank you for that, Sinead. Um, I don't know if you were at last week's meeting or you heard me say it in last week's meeting. Um, we start our deliberations in March. We have only two more weeks before deliberations start. I set that out in the plan last week. So you'd be very glad to hear there's only two more weeks left of uh, evidence gathering. Um, and I suppose we wanted to, to have as broad a range as possible of people that come in. And we did say that we weren't going to be rushed in this, albeit we did have a time scale and we're well within our time scale. Um, so we are. So I, um, uh, th that is why we have continued um, to invite people in. And you're probably right. I mean, we've heard from from many has been duplicated, whether that's been breweries or, or distillers or whatever else. We've heard over and over again some of the issues. Um, but it is important that those people get to hear, have their voice heard in this committee. Absolutely, it's vital. But as I said, it was all in our plan last week, um, the, 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 the plan ahead for the bill. So we've only another two weeks of evidence gathering. Then we have 
two weeks of possibly three weeks of deliberations. So we do. Um, so that's where we are within the plan. So we will meet our, our May deadline. We have no difficulty in meeting our May de deadline. I wouldn't imagine there'd be an issue. And that's what we've been, that was our extension that we asked for. So um, we'll not go beyond that. That's okay. Thanks, Chair. Okay, Robin, did you have something on next week's or on this, or is it AOB? Yeah, it's AOB, Chair. Okay, well then, I'll just I think move, it's AOB. I'll move on then to agenda item 15, which is any Chair. other business. Robin, did you have AOB? I was really just, Chair, in line with what you said, at what stage do the bill team come in to give us the briefing, I think? Uh, okay, the bill. The, hold on. Let Sean, you, or Janice, what did you say there for weeks? Fourth of March. Fourth of March. Once we start deliberations, yes, it was in the it was in the committee pack last week that not only will we have the the department in, but also the bill team will be here as well alongside them. So that will be in on the fourth of March. They'll be here with us. Eleventh. Or eleventh is it? Eleventh. The last evidence sessions are on the fourth. Last evidence session. Sorry, it's the fourth. It's the eleventh. But we have been meeting behind the scenes and flagging up a lot of the issues that are coming up along the way. With and the you know they're obviously the department are listening into all of this and have been liaising with me and we've been sending, you know, key points and things to them. So there's a lot of work going on. There's an awful lot of work going on in the background at the moment between uh, certainly yeah. the clerks and the um, the bill team and oh, the department, um, oh, because we didn't want to end up getting to the end of this and it all be all nasty shocks for everybody. Everybody is listening to what we're doing that is involved in this, so they're they're fully aware of every issue that is being highlighted. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, sorry. Was there someone else wanted to bring in any other business? Chair. Yes, if I could just the, on the forward work plan, and apologies if I have missed it, but I haven't seen in the pack, just because I'm new to the committee, I haven't seen no written um, in terms of time frame, so maybe if maybe if the clerk could send that on to me, because just um, like Sinead, I, I wasn't aware, that, I know we mentioned it last week, but um, if that could be sent on. Yep, that's not a problem. I know in this committee we don't do a written forward work programme. I know in other committees I've sat on I've seen them, but with just with this it hasn't been something that we have done. But I definitely will get that out to you as we'll get the full forward work plan, plan for sort of the next six weeks when it comes to the bill. Um, uh, uh, so it's sent out to everyone. Okay, members, any other business you just want to bring up? No? Happy days, no. good stuff. Then I'll move on to agenda item 16, which is date, time and location for our next meeting. We'll meet next week here in room um, 29. That's the 25th of February at 9.15am. Thank you, members. Thanks, Sharon. Thank you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29.